Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. I'm going to keep this intro short because it's a pretty long episode, but my guests today are Adam Nolly Getgood and Erman Hamidovic. I probably pronounced that wrong. They actually have come on the podcast before, uh, episode 151, about three years ago, which is, I think, one of the all-time best URM podcast episodes. Uh, And it's a shame that it took three years for us to do a part two, but it was very, very heavily requested that we talk. And just so you know, both of these dudes are brilliant. Uh, Nali is a mixer software entrepreneur and uh, former bassist of Periphery. Ehrman is a mastering engineer, software entrepreneur, author, and brilliant dudes. And it was a great conversation. I'm just going to let you get into it. Enjoy. Nolly and Ehrman, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Likewise. Always great to be on with you guys. It's been like three years or something since we did the first Trio podcast. It's unbelievable. It doesn't feel like it though, does it? It doesn't. I mean, I have no memory of really what we talked about, <laughs> but it feels recent. I know it wasn't recent because it was two living spaces ago, three living spaces ago, actually three. Oh, wow. So that means it was three years ago. That's the only way that I know because I remember what room I was in. Hmm. And I remember we talked about meditation. Oh, that's did. all I remember. Yeah, I know. I do remember yeah. that, actually. Yeah. I feel like that's something you probably could have used if you've moved three times in three years. Yeah, dude, moving sucks. Yeah. Where are you now? Did you move down to Florida or? No, I'm in Atlanta. Ah, cool. I just moved around Atlanta. This last one was the most interesting because uh, it involved an ex-girlfriend's criminal stalker showing up for the first time in about eight years. Very, very scary individual. And we were going to move out and go our separate ways at the end of February this dude showed up out of nowhere on January 1st and left a note on her car that said together forever in some weird ass code language. And so my decision was we're leaving tomorrow and, uh, you know, you can come with me or we can go our separate ways. Either one's cool, but, uh, we're not sticking around. So it was, it was an interesting move, but 
honestly, that shit doesn't stress me out very much, but it definitely does make it more interesting when you're worried about, you know, your physical safety yeah. the whole time. Sounds like and something off a you- Netflix documentary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gives you but a heck of a be. story to tell. I know, I haven't told this one yet. So um, anyway, this guy is like an ex-felon. He's on tons of gear, steroids for those of you who don't know. He's an avid shooter and a fighter and very scary kind of dude. So yeah, I made the executive decision to not stick around and find out what happens. That sounds ultra-wise. Maybe nothing would have happened, but uh, at the same time, you never really know. Yeah. So. Wow, it's a very kind of Hollywood-esque <laughs> experience you have there. I mean, yeah, it's the kind of thing nobody wants to live through, but I guess when you do and assuming everything resolves just fine, you can look back and just like have the ultimate dinner party story. Yeah, well, <laughs> I agree. It's those kinds of experiences that make life more interesting, I guess. I have a, a connection to stalkers because I used to have one. Back in the Doth days. I thought you were going to say that you were one. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. no, I'm the easiest person to break up with. If a girl breaks up with me, I delete her instantly. That's it. Like, I'm, I'm easy. Uh, no, I had someone who stalked me for about six years and was actually quite frightening. So that kind of led to me doing a lot of research about these fucking insano types. And... I feel like I kind of understand them, and that's why when he popped up, my immediate reaction was, let's just get the hell out of here. <laughs> that, let's not mess with this. Well, Are we talking an audio stalker here or a romantic stalker? Because I know the romantic. context. Yeah, okay, they're the worst. <laughs> but you know what? Those audio stalkers yep. are very similar. I know the type you're talking about. They're like the same soul. Just a different purpose. Yeah, I feel like it's the the next level on from the, you know, quote unquote Punisher, the term that Nolly actually first introduced me to back in 2012. I kind of had no conceptualization of what it was until, you know, I started working on slightly bigger records and it was like, I, I understand. I finally get what all these guys are talking about. Okay, I get why this can be a problem in your life, like a long-standing one. Yeah, and the audio stalker, I've never actually heard it referred to that way, but I'm sure... I'm sure you've had one. I'm sure, Nolly, you've had one too, or or 15 or 20. They're kind of frightening. The reason I think they're frightening is because they don't see you like a person. They see you like a, some sort of a possession or an object for them to glean or to extract things from. And if you don't go along with that, that doesn't really fit their plan. Yeah, And they're typically unstable individuals, and so... Not all of them will lean towards violence or anything. Some of them are just unstable and in a benign way, but not all. It's kind of a scary thing. It makes me very uncomfortable. They definitely have this kind of idealized perception of you. And the moment that you deviate from that whatsoever, they just kind of lose the plot completely. So it's a very interesting personality type in that respect. But I think more than anything, you have to be aware of the fact of what a person might be missing in their own lives in order to kind of project all of those things onto somebody else. So it isn't just like, you know, oh, woe was me. You know, there's this like really weird person kind of clinging on. It's also like, well, what has happened to them to put them in this position where they need to do this sort of stuff? So there's always two ways of looking at that situation. Yeah, for sure. Well, I totally agree with you. Um, as long as your physical safety isn't an issue, 
Yeah. Then I say explore it all you want, but the moment that your physical safety is an issue. And I mean, this is real for musicians. Musicians have been killed by these types. So it's a legitimate concern. But you're right. If the physical safety is not an issue and we're just talking about trying to understand where the person's coming from, then yeah, I I think it's uh, kind of the compassionate thing to do to try and understand what went wrong, what's missing, what role is it that they think that you play in their lives Right up until they write together forever on the car and, you know, sport like a collection of Winchesters. Then you kind of draw the line and uh, get a bit more extreme, I think. Yeah, exactly right. And I I just want to reiterate the romantic stalker and the audio stalker are basically two of the same kind. There wasn't too much difference except for the romantic element, I guess. Um, But the, the craziness was the same. Kind of freaky shit. I think probably a, a good advice is kind of what you did, which is whichever it is, if someone is acting that way to you as much as empathizing with them might be a good exercise to go through, it's probably best just to distance yourself and have zero contact. <laughs> just saying that for anyone out there that's experiencing stalking currently, I think don't even try and 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 interact with that person. It's, you, you never know what could happen and you don't really know what is happening. You're absolutely right. I've seen a lot of bad advice out there, such as, why don't you get a restraining order? Why don't you tell them to stop? And from all the research I did about these personality types, in general, those types of measures only work on people that are (laughs) semi-normal. So if you actually have a truly disturbed person that's uh, stalking you, getting a restraining order or trying to engage them will most likely just escalate the situation. Yeah. Uh, so you're, uh, you're absolutely right. The best move is to disengage and hope that they just latch onto somebody else or something. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of a shitty thing to say. Well, I don't think so. I, I just think it's, it's probably more dangerous to assume that you have the, the skills necessary to deal with a situation like that. You don't, unless you're a mental health professional. Yeah. I think the solution is rarely ever a rational one as well because the problem itself is rarely ever rational too. So it's very difficult to kind of, you know, rationalize your way out of that situation. All you can really do, I think, is practice avoidance as much as possible um, and hope that they, yeah, like you said, latch on someone else or at some point get the kind of help or fulfillment that they need to stop acting out in those patterns. But it's interesting how often this kind of story recurs because. A lot of my old friends, um, some of which have gone on to, you know, get quasi, let's say, YouTube fame or like, you know, become really, you know, reasonably large figures in the scene, they always have a story like this that's made them really wary about, you know, sharing their whereabouts or their address with people. And there's always yeah. that that element of like, I've got to, I've got to watch out, like who's going to get access to these details. So if I'm looking to, let's say, send an old friend like a copy of my book or whatever else it might be, some kind of physical package, they're always like, all right, you really have to keep this under wraps or like, here's a PO box, that sort of stuff. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's totally understandable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I used to have an approach that was a lot, like far too kind of trusting and not really thinking about that side of things. But more recently, I've realized the importance of it and uh, definitely try and be more. You're such a nice guy. Uh, I can totally see you being very nice about it. (laughs) Stalker fodder. (laughs) Man, I can see that like your niceness could cause that issue to kind of uh, get unmanageable at times just because you're super polite, you're super nice, and 
I think people could misinterpret that as an invitation. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Thankfully, I've not really had many experiences that way, at least not since not since touring. And it's not like I've, I really encountered much of that at all. But yeah, it definitely could be a liability and something which I'm trying to be more aware of for sure. Ermin, you were saying that some of your friends uh, basically all had a story like that? I wouldn't say all of them, but I'd say the guys who have achieved what you might call, you know, quasi-fame in the scene, especially the guys online who put themselves out there on mediums like YouTube, they usually have at least one story like this that got, you know, somewhat extreme. And they won't often talk about it in detail, but there's enough of an illusion to what happened for me to kind of accept the gravitas of the situation and go, okay, cool, I, I get that you take this very seriously and I have to be very discreet with these details that you're pro- providing to me. So I think what's interesting about social media and the style of getting known through that, I don't even know what to call it, let's just say social media fame, is that since social media, you know, by its title, social media, it comes off in a personal way. Uh, that That's actually what works. Authenticity and even, you know, lower production values that don't seem like they came from like a corporate TV studio or something. Lower production values and more personalized, authentic content is what works on social media. And so by very nature of the, of the product, you're connecting with people in a way that you just wouldn't through some slick medium. And I think that that right there opens up YouTubers, podcasters, whatever. It makes people think that they already know them in real life. Like I've gotten this before. People who have met me who are podcast listeners have told me that it's really, really weird for them. This is what the normal ones say because they've heard me talking in their car for five years. But then some of the weirder ones will act like we know each other. Even though I met them for the first time, I have no idea who they are, but they'll act like we have a relationship going, which makes me extremely uncomfortable. But it's because I've been talking in their car for five years um, and, you know, talking pretty openly about things and talking openly with guests about their lives too. And that's the beauty, I think, of the podcasting format, but it also is the the scary part of it, you connect with people in a different way that maybe if you're just in a band, you can hide behind the music. Yeah. You don't have to get personal. I, I think it's all relatively new to us. We're still kind of struggling to evolve with the rate of our technological progress. So the, the format through which we're doing so many of our social interactions these days are so fundamentally unnatural to the human animal. And I think we're all trying to basically find a point of equilibrium with it all to make sense. But I completely understand why somebody could feel like they've known you for, you know, the majority of, let's say, their adult lives if they're a young young adult and been listening to the podcast for ages. It's just you constantly have to be conscious of the fact that you need to put a dividing line uh, in between, you know, how you how you make that perception and how you actually approach this person. Like just because I've listened to Michael Ackerfeld's music for let's say 20 years, when I see him, it's not going to be like, hey Mikey, how you doing, man? That's, hey man, it's good to see you, you know? And guys sometimes come up that way to me and, you know, I'm not a sucker for social convention or anything, but it's like, if you come up to me, I've never spoken to you and you're like, hey Ermsy, man, check out my EP, and like all this shit. It's, it's a very weird way to come onto someone that you have no prior rapport with. So I think having that convention in place to sort of set the groundwork of a, of a social 
relationship is very important, especially in this age. Yeah, you know, I know what you mean too, and I know what they mean because, okay, so I've been listening to the Joe Rogan podcast forever or Howard Stern or something. Like, I know I don't know them, but I feel like I know them, but I don't. (laughs) They have no idea who I am. And if I would happen to be in a room with them, I would never dream of ever approaching them as if we knew each other. But I understand the feeling because I've been hearing these people talk forever. So they seem like real people to me Yeah, that I know. I think what you said about the human animal not being caught up to the technology is very, very wise. I think it's important to understand that there's about 100,000 or more years of nothing and then about 100 years of this, basically. It's quite a learning curve, I think. I think we definitely have not adapted to it yet. I think it's quite a hard interaction to break out of. Like, you know, for example, uh, until we've all been in lockdown, mainly when I've been driving around, just been listening to radio, like national radio. And it's really cool to hear the DJs coming on. They're already personable and have their own personalities. And yeah, you start to feel like you know them. And just imagining a situation like you describe. Um, Al, where I'm, you know, I meet one of those people. It's very difficult to kind of willfully forget that you have some idea of their personality, at least as they put it out there, and start from scratch. I think it takes quite a genuine concern and empathy to be able to do that. And I think I've met a few people in my life that seem just unnaturally good at picking up conversations with famous people or people that otherwise might have their guard up, and they they do it by being really genuine and genuinely caring and talking to those people like they. Like they're a stranger that they're interested to, to know more about. And um, it's not going to work all the time because some people just have their guard up too much. But there's nothing you can do to go from like kind of entering into a conversation as a fan to walking out of it with like a genuine friendship with that person, I think. It's almost like the way that a stripper won't date the clients. There's a, <laughs> there's a parallel there. I th- Yeah, I think if you approach somebody like a fan, you won't walk out a friend. I met Mike Patton once about 20 years ago. And I, Mike Patton, you know, he's super respected now. At that time, he was a massive rock star, I guess. This was like in the late 90s. And um, people worshipped the hell out of him. And he was one of my musical heroes. And I just wanted to talk to him about uh, his vocal warm-ups. I just wanted to know what they were. Like, I did not want to fanboy him or anything like that. I just wanted to know what he did because I was taking vocal lessons at the time and the dude is a fucking maniac on stage. So they were playing in Boston and I went to the club before the show hoping that I could bump into him and I did bump into him on the street. And I just engaged him in conversation like a normal human. And then we started talking about that. And he told me all about his vocal warm-ups. He was totally, totally cool. Totally normal. I did not fanboy him at all. 100% just human-to-human interaction. While we were talking, the Mike Patton squad came up, like fan squad, basically, and started fanboying him like, like crazy. Like, they surrounded us and interrupted us and just were treating him basically like a prize stallion or something. And what he did was he turned his back to them and then kept talking to me and made a face, basically. He made a face like these fucking idiots and uh, completely iced them out, uh, which I thought was very, very interesting. Like, to this day, 
it stuck with me because it was exactly what you're saying, that if you approach somebody like a normal human, uh, that's how you're going to end up having a normal human relationship with them. Uh, if you approach them like a fan, there's no way to walk out of it a friend. I think it's because as a fan, you're not seeing the other person as a person. You're seeing them as it's like some sort of a mythical being that creates this thing you consume. It's deification. And I think the problem with that is that what kind of an interaction could you possibly hope to have with that person beyond that point? Like there's really no exchange that can happen because you're basically setting up this really bizarre power dynamic that they probably don't even want where you've put them up on this insane pedestal where you can never reach as you know a, a mere fanboy or whatever you might see yourself as then how do you expect to have like a regular two-way conversation with that's the groundwork that you've laid so it's just in general a really bad practice i find so every time i found and it's not often I find people that, you know, I, I perceive in those terms, but when I actually met the guys from Opeth when I was, you know, like an early adult, late teenager, I was very conscious of the fact that like, hey, just be cool, have a nice, calm conversation with these guys, tell them the set was good and we'll move on from there. Don't be like, oh man, you've, you know, you know, you've revolutionized my life. You know, I don't listen to music the <laughs> same way. Still Life is the best record ever written. You know, I still listen to it 20 years later and that sort of stuff. So just, I think, chill a little bit and try and be mindful of the other person's position and perspective and how often they might run into that, especially if there's someone as massive as Mike Patton who'd be getting it all the time by the late 90s. If you can imagine like the level of punishment and anxiety and strain that would have been putting on his life at that point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was at the height of Faith No More and the height of Mr. Bungle. Wow. So both of the bands on major labels, I think Faith No More had just done, they had reunited or something, but... They had done tours with like Guns N' Roses and shit, like massive, massive stuff and had like big radio hits and like one or two platinum records. And then Mr. Bungle was just destroying it. They were also, I can't believe that band was on a major label, by the way. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Can you imagine? It confuses the hell out of me. A band like Mr. Bungle being on Warner Brothers now? Yeah, not at all. It was a different time, Al. A very different time, I think. <laughs> yeah. If anyone's not familiar with them, uh, go listen to Disco Volante and realize that that came out on Warner Brothers. Yep. It's kind of mind-blowing. The Opeth guys, actually, that's a perfect example because I kind of felt that way about their music. I, I still kind of do, but, uh, but I especially did you know, like 15 years ago, and I got the chance. Well, it's hard not to. Yeah, right? Sorry, we'll let you go on, but just going back to that, it's when you hear something like, you know, My Arms, Your Hearse, Still Life, or Blackwater Park for the first time, which is around the era that I got into them, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was nothing else. There, there was, you couldn't be like, oh, I like this band, therefore I will listen to these other ones. They had just created this crazy amalgam of prog rock and melodic death metal that just kind of nobody else was doing on the same level. So it was either you were into Opeth and Opeth or nothing, you know? <laughs> Basically. I remember seeing them in about 2003 or four, the Blackwater Park tour. Yep. And there were only like 100 or 200 people at the show. But I felt like I was watching Led Zeppelin or something. Like, I felt like I was watching something that was historically great. It was ridiculous. I'd never seen anything like it. And to this day, I haven't seen anything like it. And it blew my mind. And then I met them and I didn't feel the need to tell Michael that because I know he doesn't believe it. And if he does believe it, he's not going to let you know he believes it. 
he hears that shit 24-7 and I'll just give you an example. So I was hanging out with them at NAMM one year, okay? And uh, we went to dinner, and then we went to some show, and then we went back to the Hilton. And me and Freddie were trying to smoke weed. And he had a room at the Hilton that kind of went out to this patio. This patio was communal, I guess. So all the other rooms that were connected to this patio, you know, had access to it. So we went out there to smoke this joint and I guess a bunch of the people on the patio were Opeth fans and recognized him and so they crowded around us and then before you knew it there were and I'm not exaggerating 50 strangers in his hotel room just like going through his shit going into the mini fridge using his bathroom like it was so not okay and he was so uncomfortable and you know, Swedes, they're so fucking polite. So obviously he didn't say anything, but you could tell that in his face that he was just dying on the inside. Like these were complete strangers just like helping themselves to his hotel room. That is so disrespectful. That makes me mad to think about. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I can, and it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, just thinking about his face, like it was like like half smile, half grimace because he's polite and, you know, got to be nice to fans, but at the same time, they're in my shit. Yeah. It stresses me out just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of this whole conversation should also be that people are just different. Like, maybe the guy that you want to approach is really extrovert, really down to talk to people, kind of wants the attention even, or at least wants some companionship and is at a time in the day where he's got time. And you might have a great interaction if you go up to him and kind of fanboy out. He might be able to diffuse that and turn it into something cool. But then there's other people that just, they might be introverted, they might be having a bad day, they might, there might be some kind of cultural difference. And I don't mean that you need to go by stereotypes, but you're right, a lot of the Swedish guys of a certain age tend to be really low-key, at least in like the metal world. And maybe they just don't want to chat. Maybe they're never going to want to chat and you're never going to be able to have that, that relationship that you wish to have with them. It's really interesting. I've really got that vibe from Martin Lopez when we first met the guys. Out of all the guys in Opeth, he struck me as like a Taipei introvert. Just wanted to go about his business, you know, smoke his joint <laughs> at the back of the venue and like kids just wouldn't leave him alone. And I mean, I'm, I was kind of guilty of this because I was pretty young back then. So I was kind of just loitering and hovering around. And I remember how uncomfortable the guy looked. And, you know, in my mind back then, I'm like, I couldn't understand it because to me at that point, I'm like, this guy has it all. You know, he's in a touring band. It's Opeth. They're fantastic. They're like at the pinnacle of metal. You know, why would he be upset? And then, you know, obviously um, in subsequent years, those issues would kind of grow and grow and grow until he eventually decided to you know, abandon ship altogether. So stuff can be pretty serious if it becomes long-standing for guys that aren't, that are ill-equipped to deal with it long-term. For sure. So my band never got anywhere even a fraction of that size or a fraction of periphery size. And I can tell you that that was one of the reasons that I wanted to stop touring. So, Nolly, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you because periphery is like 20x the size of my band. I'm sure it was intense on that front. It could be at times. We had, you know, a good a good range of fans, and towards the end, as the band was getting bigger, we were doing a lot of. I'm talking like the band isn't a thing anymore. <laughs> towards the end of my time, it's in the band, definitely yeah. a thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's all these kind of VIP packages and like 
good moments for us to interact with the fans. And I think we were able to turn them into really positive experiences for everyone. But uh, it definitely, you know, I'm a pretty introverted guy and there's certain times just come off stage. Um, maybe even being on stage is something which makes you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> like you need your alone time after that. And, and sometimes yeah, you don't, you don't have that space and that can be difficult. But hey, I, I mean, it's still ultimately a very minor price to pay for the privilege and experience of, you know, getting to play cool music on stage and put out records as a living. Absolutely. Uh, and you know what? I actually think that the VIP package is a great way to kind of mitigate the whole situation in a way uh, because it provides a structured environment for the fans that are the most enthusiastic to have their moment. Yeah. And then the moment's over and hopefully you can kind of go back to your privacy. Yeah. But it keeps it contained. And so I think that the types of fans who would buy a VIP package are also the types of fans who would find you at your hotel or who would, you know, get to the venue at 2 p.m. and stalk the stage or whatever, just hoping to find you. But if you give them that VIP package, the need for them to find you at your hotel is gone because they're going to get that time with you at the meet and greet. And so I think that it actually, I'm not sure that this is the exact motivation for those meet and greets. Uh, I'm positive that the motivation is more on the let's make the most of this tour. But I think that it probably has the unintended benefit of keeping the interaction with those types to a limited and positive experience basically sure yeah and you know what's really cool is on the other hand too there's there's people that come to the meet and greets that are really cool personable people that maybe are more introverted themselves and are not going to stand there and bother you at the end of a show or not going to you know fight with a crowd of people to have a conversation with you and in that moment they actually have the chance to have a decent conversation we've met some really cool people met some cool families that came out with their young kids and stuff like that you know they're not going to hang around after the show to try and have a word so we actually got to meet some some really nice, genuine, cool fans that didn't display any of these characteristics we're talking about and, and have a decent conversation with them in, a, in an appropriate setting. So that's something that I felt good about. I'm sure that that made the whole experience better for you, being that you are an introvert. Yeah. I'm sure the fact that you had the experience of meeting cool people and not just getting punished made the whole thing a much more tolerable experience. For sure. Yeah, we had some really good times. Yeah. And I just want to say also that I don't mean at all to make it sound like this is some sort of a burden or anything because it's totally a privilege to get to make music for a living and have fans. Absolutely. It's just, if we're being real, there's nothing in life that's perfect. No matter what profession you have, no matter how awesome your profession is, there's going to be elements of it that might not be perfect and that's just life so but that's not in any way to say that we're saying that uh those of us who have been able to make a living at this don't appreciate it or anything like that or that we even have contempt for fans it's not that at all 
No, it's not that whatsoever. But it's interesting when you look at, let's say, we're sold that, let's say, the pinnacle of human existence in the West is to be like an A-list Hollywood actor. And these people so very often have some fundamental coping issues with life. There's always like drug dependencies. There's always crazy stuff going on. And you always think to yourself like, well, you know, no matter what you achieve in your life, what tier you end up on or kind of what avenue you take, everything always comes with its own burdens and responsibilities. And it seems like being in a position where you're extremely kind of prolific and out in the limelight, which I'm very, I guess, personally glad not to be because like this is a very secluded job where nobody really knows or cares who you are in my position. People care who you are. Oh, well, you know, I've, I've yet to meet a substantial quota of them. So, you know, I'm happy with that. But as far as the actors and stuff go, like they would be getting it all the time. It would be hypercharged in a way that I have no conceptualization of. I have no reference point for it. So to actually be that segregated from, you know, the bulk of the human populace to only be able to interact with a select few individuals on that same kind of level that you exist on and actually have a two-way kind of, you know, discourse, that must be such a surreal place to exist, you know? But again, going back to what AL said, this is in no way a complaint about like where we find ourselves or the vast majority of interactions we have with people. It's just, I find... For me, human psychology is deeply fascinating. Uh, group psychology, kind of herd mentality and things like that is something I've done a deep dive into over the last 10 years. So I'm always fascinated with the way that we interact with each other through various mediums and especially as technology progresses and we move a lot more of it online and things become a lot more alien to our kind of primordial biology, if you will. So the ways that we interact are far more surreal and kind of contrived now. And it's interesting to see the emergent kind of patterns of human behavior when that happens. Absolutely. However, I do think that the cult of celebrity is age old. It's just morphed. I think that the same types of people who would be like charismatic spiritual leaders 2000 years ago, you know, something like that are now the celebrities. So, And maybe thousands of years ago, they'd worship them like a uh, deity and start a religion after them. Now they'll just fan the shit out of them. But I think that charisma and having a special something that is rare, that for some reason other people gravitate towards, that's age old. So what's interesting is superimposing that over technology because it's it's like a force multiplier. But I don't think that it's a new concept at all. Yeah, I agree. Technology's really changed the game, you know. Now... People can broadcast for themselves. They don't need some tabloid magazine or gossip magazine to kind of spread to the world what they've been up to. They can kind of get involved in their own race to the bottom of giving away their personal life um, in exchange for some kind of social recognition. But I think in all spheres, you see people that also weather it with grace. I might be completely wrong about this, but I'm thinking of several, you know, a few actors, Hollywood actors that have always maintained like a strict barrier around their personal life and they've managed to have decades long careers, you know, as A list actors without. Seeming, I'm sure they face a lot of challenges, but without kind of getting involved in that kind of attention grabbing stuff that you see other people doing and often having quite short or turbulent careers as a, as a result. Daniel Day Lewis comes to mind. Sure. Is Tom Hanks another one too? That's who came to my mind, but I might be, I might be wrong about that. No, uh, that comes to mind as well. I think that celebrities get a bad rap because of the ones who do shit like that really horrible. Uh, song that just got passed around. I don't know if you saw the John Lennon cover that kind of became a viral shitstorm. That somehow evaded me. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, so 
basically a bunch of actors decided that they were going to sing Imagine off of their cell phones in their beach houses. I think that they they had like a positive sentiment about togetherness during pandemic. You know, if you're listening to this years later, we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and everybody's locked down. I'm sure we're going to get to more about that in this conversation, aren't we? Somehow we've managed to not mention it so far. Yeah, no, it's coming up. But uh, <laughs> so the, these actors, they all sang Imagine and then it was cut together. One person, one line, and the next person, another line. But they're all like in their mansions and shit and singing out of tune with like no makeup on, just looking like shit, sounding like shit. And uh, I know that it probably came from a good place. Like, let's try to spread some positivity in a dark time. But it came off completely out of touch uh, from reality and it turned on them and it became a massive shitstorm. If you haven't seen it, you really should see it. It's really pretty funny. It's, you know, the most horrible way possible. So, but you have those types of celebrities that really rub people the wrong way. Uh, And I think that celebrities as a whole get a bad rap because of that. But then you have your... Daniel Day-Lewis's of the world, the Tom Hanks of the world, the Christian Bales of the world who just do great work and are recognized for their great work, but there's no extra bullshit that you hear about. And I really, really respect that. And I know that on my minuscule amount of, I don't even want to say fame, just being known in this minuscule metal industry with the amount of people that I have coming at me, I can only try to imagine what it would be like for someone like Christian Bale. And it seems overwhelming to say the least. So the fact that they're able to keep their shit together and not develop horrible drug habits and not become a Lindsay Lohan style mess. I think that that says a lot. I really do respect that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, going back to what you were saying about this cult of personality being an age-old phenomena, just before this podcast started, I was watching an old primer on the philosophy of Stoicism, and I think one of the things that either Epictetus or um, Seneca wrote was, because one of the big things for the Stoics was not to get caught up with the minutia of life and kind of focus on the big picture, he was saying, um, basically, when you're around the water cooler or the ancient, you know, Roman equivalent of the water cooler, don't talk about, you know, the gladiators of the time. Don't talk about other people. Talk about concepts and ideas and kind of the ebb and flow of life. So it seems like this is something endemic to our nature. And just as you said, technology has like been a force multiplier that's just turned things up to like, you know, 12. And, you know, this is kind of the kind of cauldron that we live in and the things that we perceive. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it can be a really negative experience to spend all of your time talking about other people in negative ways or even just you know being all up in other people's business and sharing that around i think you know gossiping perhaps holds some social value in keeping people in line within a you know a unified societal goal but beyond that i think it can really have a negative effect on you as a person i was just reading a book it's by malcolm gladwell and i'm actually looking in my audible account right now it's called talking to strangers it talks about gossip and how gossip evolved as a way to keep people accountable to society, which if you look at it from that frame, it's actually pretty interesting. It doesn't seem so bad because basically if someone does something terrible, 
you can't go kill them or anything. I mean, you could, but what can you really do if they do something that is not really a crime, but also not acceptable? In order to keep people in line, reputation has formed, the idea of reputation, and that holding weight became something that evolved into being very, very important. Gossip is one of the things that can destroy a reputation. And so apparently it evolved as a way to keep society in line socially. That, I think, it makes sense. I'm sure it's true. It just seems like it's a dangerous fire to play with. I think Absolutely. on some levels it's, it makes sense, and on other levels, I mean, the risk of somebody becoming unfairly judged for something they haven't done and that's been spread around as a group, that can be equally life-destroying. I mean, we're probably all watching loads of Netflix documentaries with the downtime that we've got currently, and there's so many things about innocent people in prison or having their lives ruined, even getting killed over things that they weren't that had nothing to do with. And that terrifies me. The idea of somebody just inventing some story about you or getting some fact incorrect and spending it around and it ending up having some massive effect on you. Man, when I was at Berkeley, this happened to a friend of mine. So friend of mine and I were at a party. We were hanging out in, I always called it the alternate reality room. At every party there was like, where. <laughs> 95% of the people were. And then there was the alternate reality room where a few weirdos were smoking weed and being weirdos. But uh, it was in the alternate reality room with a friend and uh, this girl and her boyfriend. And the boyfriend freaked out suddenly and was like, I forget her name, so let's just say Samantha. Uh, Samantha, we got to leave right now. Stay the fuck away from him. It was pointing at my friend. I was like, what the hell's going on here? And apparently some girl got raped at some other college dorm a week ago. And this boyfriend of Samantha's had decided that this dude had done it. I know that my friend didn't do it because we were hanging out that night all night, the night in question. So there's no possible way that he could have been in two places at once. So my friend didn't do it. And that's the only way that I know he didn't do it, right? Because if I wasn't there, I can't know. But I know that the night of the party, he was hanging out with me. So he didn't do it, but he was being accused of it. And the boyfriend obviously was just acting out of self-defense and trying to protect his girlfriend. Completely understandable. But... Where he came up with the idea that my friend had done this, I have, I will never understand. And thankfully, it was cleared up right then and there in the room, and it didn't go any further. But you can see and you know that that could have potentially destroyed his life. Um, and something that we don't, we didn't even know anybody at that school. Like, we have no idea who this girl that got raped was or what group of friends they were in or anything like you're complete strangers like we weren't even in the same social circles as that you know one accusation and spread through the power of gossip can have disastrous effects and i think you're right it is very very frightening because i've seen it firsthand yeah well we don't have water coolers to gather around and and gossip around at the moment so yeah <laughs> probably a good thing but I think it's definitely a good point that, that you make um, it's probably better to make your interactions focused on positivity or creativity at least and not just talking about other people and kind of secretly harboring desires to be like those people but instead outwardly 
claiming to pass some kind of negative judgment on them, which seems to be what a lot of gossip's about. I think in the last podcast, you brought up Sam Harris a lot and mindfulness meditation. I think in the same sense, I've been discovering that I've been kind of walking along parallels with the philosophy of Stoicism over the last, you know, however many years it's been, where um, a few of the things that really resonated with me was their adherence to this idea to really not focus on minutia and just kind of let the little things pass. So one of their big four virtues. <laughs> but you're a mastering engineer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. how, how does that work? <laughs> Sorry, continue, we can get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, please, we can explore that at length if you like. Uh, but yeah, the funny thing about that is, um, was this uh, based on like the backlash that you guys got based on those topics from the last podcast? People weren't ready to kind of, you know, delve into, you know, other topics or... What do you mean? Was there a backlash? I wasn't aware of one. No. Oh, no, 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 no. I just, uh, I think backlash is probably the wrong word. I was kind of curious how people uh, took our big detour into, uh, you know, philosophy and meditation and all that stuff for the last podcast. Oh, okay. I was going to say backlash. You... No, no, wrong word. Like, that Entirely is not the, the wrong right word. Because <laughs> it's to this day one of the most brought up episodes in a positive way. That's fantastic. I don't really hear about the episodes that people didn't like. Only once we had a guest on where I had to pull the episode down because the guest was just a fucking asshole to our audience and oh yeah it was not cool at all and we published it and never have my friends hit me up like all together independently and been like hey man that episode's going too far you need to take it down when trusted friends hit me up and i'll say that i'll listen but Anyway, so I don't I don't really hear about the ones that people don't like. I think they just kind of sink into obscurity. But the one that we did, people loved. I, I loved it. It was one of my favorite episodes to do. Uh, if all I was doing on here was talking about compressor settings and what's your favorite microphone, I would have quit doing this <laughs> a long time ago. And I've switched the format from when it started. It was mostly about recording techniques, mixing techniques. And I was doing it with my partner's co-hosts, but then they kind of lost interest in podcasting because talking about compressor settings, you can only talk about that for so long before you want to shoot yourself. But I love talking to people. I love great conversations. And so my aim has been to try to go past all that. And any chance that I get to speak to people where audio is just, it's kind of our common bond, but, uh, we're talking about deeper things. I love that. And those episodes tend to get the best reaction, actually. So I would say the opposite of backlash. I think uh, people loved that episode. That's awesome. That's well, fantastic. I feel it's sorry really... for interrupting you now. I mean, as humorous as I thought it was at the time. <laughs> By all means, continue about the stoicism and, and your parallel path that you've been on. You know, what's really interesting is I was, I was on that sort of a, a thought stream uh, that, you know, what you mentioned, it just completely kind of knocked me out. And because it's so late here, I wasn't able to kind of, you know, pivot my mind and go, hey, okay, that's, that's what was going on. So again, backlash, definitely not the right word. But getting back to what I was quickly going to get through is one of the cool things about Stoicism is a really big focus on one of its core virtues, which is temperance. And a lot of that is about self-control and letting the moment pass and avoiding emotional extremes, which is so relevant to modern society, whether it be like avoiding random, um, you know, 
pointless arguments on social media or not just like, you know, abusing someone out of your car when you're on your way to work. There are so many things where I'm finding that the further back into history that I go philosophically, the more and more conceptually I find things that are relevant to modern day life that we seem to have either let go of or forgotten about. So that's one of the things that's been kind of interesting over the last couple of months for me. I see how that ties into the idea of people being the same throughout the ages. Yeah, I mean, 2,000 years ago wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. That's uh, probably less than 2% in the timeline of modern human history. So it's not that long ago. I don't really believe that human issues change. I think the only thing that changes is the setting. There's no reason for why we would be different. I mean, we're anatomically, physiologically the same. We are taller though, due to selective breeding. But uh, other yeah, than that, we're yeah. much the same. Yeah, I, I mean, sure, some differences, of course, but our brains are uh, pretty much the same. Yeah, uh, I don't think society, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but I don't, I just don't think shit changes when it comes to people, Not at least not that fast. So I think that that ancient wisdom still, it still applies yeah, I think I remember reading that our brains are no more advanced than they would have been, and I, I can't even say how many years ago, but going a long, long way into the past. There's no evidence to suggest that we're capable of any more advanced processing in our brains than any humans that we'd recognize in the past. It's just that we're getting bombarded with so much information, I guess we're perhaps getting more used to to making sense of it all. But, um, but yeah, people were really damn smart, even many thousands of years ago. Yeah, and in some ways... We take for granted a lot of the things that we do now that involve thousands of life and death decisions. We take it for granted. We think that we're all comfy in our society, in our modern world, because you know we're not getting eaten by tigers. But take driving, for instance. You have the opportunity to kill yourself and other people every single time you get into a vehicle. And it's Thousands of micro-calculations you don't even realize are happening, which keep you driving, you know, in the lane and from not hitting a person, from not driving into another car. But it's so common to us. It's such a normal part of life that we don't think about it. But we're engaging in very dangerous activities on a regular basis where it truly is a life or death outcome and we normalize it just because just because it it's exactly that it's it's normal but i think if anything i'm really really impressed by the amount of information that a human is able to take in and normalize in their behavior uh, so i do agree that Technology is advancing faster than the human mind can keep up with it, but give us a little bit of credit because it's pretty amazing that we can do the things we do, like drive cars and fly airplanes, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's remarkable considering that all of those are basically learned behaviors that you could have taught an ancient human. I mean, our capacity mentally is exactly the same. So I think it's one of the reasons that I always suggest to people to be extremely mindful of where we came from because people have this really weird idea like, 
When we think back on events like, let's say, you know, World War II or the Holocaust, they think that we've kind of innately out-evolved those behaviours? Nope, <laughs> definitely not. We haven't. All you have to do is look at the current social climate, the current political climate. People are still predisposed towards the same behaviours and you need to be mindful of what you're capable of and what your shortfalls are as a human being to not walk those patterns again. So it's really important to be mindful of that sort of stuff. So it's also really important to respect the infrastructure and the, the way our society has developed to prevent those things from getting out of, out of hand. I mean, you can see the negative impact that conspiracy theorying is happening. Did I just say theorying? <laughs> you made a word. I did, yeah. That's, that's my brain just advancing right there. And then, yeah, you can see the negative effect that conspiracy theories about what we're going through at the moment is having. I mean, I was just reading in the news about hospital over here that that had its its connection cut off like mobile phones and cell signal was was completely eliminated because of people trying to set fire to a phone mast in its vicinity and i mean people because of 5g yeah exactly oh my god but i think it would be really great if as a species we could become really selective about where we like what what information we we take on board whether it makes sense logically because there's a reason why we have all of the, the structure around us that we do now and it's kind of to, to help us get through events like we're going through at the moment in a different way to how we got through previous pandemics 100 years ago that wiped out billions of people. It's so dangerous because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, on the one hand, who gets to decide what information is uh, correct, right? If you limit people's ability to spread information on the basis of wanting to ensure that it's correct, that's awesome. That's a great intentions. But what if you get a bad actor in there? Um, so there, there you have a model for the type of country where the government owns the media and c controls the entire flow of information. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the problem you're seeing in the Western world right now is the pendulum on the other side where everybody has equal access to spreading their stupid fucking opinions and bad ideas can spread like wildfire because I think, uh, and this has to do with humans not catching up to the technology too, I think that while we are very rational in some ways, we haven't quite figured out how to completely process all the shit coming at us, all the in information coming at us, and we still will make impulsive and irrational, emotional-based uh, reactions, basically, to things coming our way. And I think that that impulse is so strong in us that unless you're very, very mindful of it, you can get swayed by bad info if it's conveyed in a, I guess, a convincing enough way. So I think there's uh, dangers on both sides. It's one of the downsides, I think, of our, of our current world. But on the other hand, what's the solution to it? Because, like I said, the pendulum in the other way, you get a totalitarian style of living, which is also not good. I think probably just more more airtime being given to actual expertise and less politicizing of, of major events which don't really require political input. It, I think it requires all of us really learning and we're, we're facing an uphill battle with the way that social media is going, you know, the way that the, uh, the algorithms function now, they, they can pretty much tell how to sway you. I mean, I like to think that I'm fairly logical and, 
and considered about my opinions, but the reality is I'm, I'm probably not at all if something's put to me in a way that seems scientific and logical and kind of ticks my boxes, I could probably be made to believe more or less anything. So, Well, you're human. Yeah. I think we probably all just need to be aware of that and, and expose ourselves to just the right amount of opposing information. What's interesting, too, is about the way the algorithms work is I don't think it's some nefarious plot. It's also coming from a place of, I don't want to say altruistic intention, but there's a reason for why the algorithm works the way it does. The people who run these massive social media sites want you to stay on the site. And so they want you to have the best experience possible. Um, And even though there's a financial motive, like targeting you for the right kinds of ads, well, think about it. It's so that if your interest is uh, cars and recording, you're not getting hit with random ads for basket weaving. You'll get ads for cars and recording, and that'll keep you engaged. And I think that that's a really good thing. It morphs itself to your interests. That's It's beautiful in concept. But then also the byproduct is you get into an echo chamber because you only see things that are in line with however narrow your worldview is or your interests are. And it's very, very hard to see outside of that unless you're looking because you kind of don't know what you don't know. So if, uh, if all you do is use social media and you're not thinking about the fact that these sites are morphing themselves to your interests and you don't consume sources from any place else, well, yeah, that's going to shape your worldview. And if you're getting bad info, then uh, you will believe bad info. Sure. It was a very interesting bearing witness to this. And, you know, I'm a layman here. I don't really delve into this much, but, you know, bearing witness to the last U.S. presidential election as presented online. And obviously being in the music industry, we're highly liberal leaning. And that's basically the majority of what I saw. I saw the smugness of the liberal media and how they were convinced, you know, that they were going to win and et cetera, et cetera. And obviously history tells a very different story. And it was interesting to see how out of touch everybody was with the actual, the sentiment on the ground with the average person simply because of those echo chambers. So I think in a sense, it can be kind of a dangerous thing to do to segment people to that degree, to almost believe the other side doesn't actually exist. You almost don't account for that reality. And I think we need to get... There's been a really fascinating documentary made about this called Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis. I would strongly recommend it to anyone fascinated by this sort of stuff. Um, he did a really, really good documentary that the the sixth record that we worked on was actually based on called The Century of the Self. Um, some amazing documentaries about kind of recent human history and the sort of political and social, you know, developments that have shaped our um, our emergence, let's say, over the last hundred or so years. And hypernormalization focuses on this idea that reality isn't really an absolute. It's something that can very much be contrived and controlled to suit narratives or, you know, to suit circumstances. So stuff that's worth being mindful of. You know, uh, you're the second person to recommend that documentary to me. Would that hypernormalization or Century of the Self? Hypernormalization. My friend Jesse Cannon, who's a really smart person, I respect a lot. He's one of those people that even if I don't share viewpoints with him all the time, we have a great relationship. It's not to veer off topic, but uh, I'm just bringing him up because um, to me, he's proof that it's possible to be friends with people who feel differently than yourself. If there's ever something in the news that I don't agree with that I know 
he does, I'll just ask him about it and not, not because I'm trying to challenge him. I just want to understand because he's a rational, sane person and I, uh, I trust his mind. So I'll hit him up and we'll talk about it. And sometimes what he says will make perfect sense and change my viewpoint. Other times I still think that he's wrong, but it's okay. But anyways, he has told me about hyper normalization and has recommended it. So now that's two people that I respect saying it. You know what's interesting about those echo chambers? The comedians were the one were basically the ones sounding the alarm about this uh, <laughs> because comedians, you know, they tour everywhere. So they go, they don't just stick to the coasts. They go everywhere, kind of like musicians do. And they were the ones saying that that people's perception of of what the sentiment was, at least on the coasts, was very, very different than the reality of the situation. And yeah, it is very, very dangerous. You begin believing that that echo chamber is actually reality. I don't think reality is the part that's uh, malleable. I think it's our perception of reality that's what's malleable. Yeah. That's pretty much all we have. That's our only way of interfacing with reality, isn't it? I was going to say, at a certain point, you have to defer to somebody else's perception or presentation of events because you can't be in all places at all times and you can't form a first person sort of a perspective on everything because, I mean, we're obviously very limited. The world is a very large place and there's only so many things you can study or so many places you can be at at a given time. So you kind of have to um, assign confidence to some entity, to, to some source of information. And I think the scariest part in this day and age is knowing where to do that you know who's not going to mislead you um whose interests are you know pure and just and whether such a thing actually exists so it's a fascinating place to be i think it's frightening that's actually one of my big problems with this time period is not knowing who to trust for info i love technology i love social media um I'm I'm cool with most of this stuff. I love digital audio. Uh, I, I'm cool with technology, but what I'm not cool with is not understanding what to believe. And it's on a very, very deep level right now. I've seen so many stories that became mainstream uh, that then came out to be lies or based on a mistake I've seen it so many times in the past four years that I'm curious. I'd like to hear from both of you. How do you guys go about believing that something is real? Like, What makes you decide, okay, this is legit? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a real thing what you're talking about. I think I, um, I feel perhaps, you didn't use this word, but I, I feel a bit apathetic towards some of these things because, yeah, it's like, a, how do I know whether any of this is real in the first place? I think I probably have an unhealthy trust for uh, news reported by the major sites that don't seem as partisan. I mean, in the States, it seems like you have some really partisan news sources, and I know they are too in the UK. <laughs> you, but, could, you could say yeah. that. Um, but I think here in the UK, I mean, I, again, maybe I'm wrong to do so, but I put quite a lot of faith in the BBC news, and I try and look beyond the pages which are just about the, the top stories and go to you know, the, the news which shows what's happening in the rest of the world. I'm quite quite interested in what's happening in Latin America because my wife's uh, from Latin America and I, you know, I'm really interested about what's happening there and it can be really tough to find news about major events that, that we know are happening there because we know people there. Again, that Sam Harris podcast has proved really a constant source of 
news and, and what I believe to be rational conversation about it as, as much as Sam Harris can be biased in his ways. He seems to realize that he is and, and genuinely want to get to the bottom of what's there. So a combination of, of, yeah, kind of mainstream news that seems relatively unbiased to me combined with uh, people that seem genuinely want to want to challenge their own perspective on things. But I definitely do feel a sense of apathy in a way that I think you're describing where it's a bit like, well, who really knows what's happening? At the end of the day, you could tell me none of this was real and I wouldn't be that shocked, as disappointing as it would be. You know, the thing about Sam Harris that I think is great is, look, I, I don't always agree with everything he thinks and I don't agree with everything anybody. I don't agree with everything that anybody thinks. But what I love about him is that he's more than willing to talk to the most intelligent people from the opposite side of where he thinks he's coming from. He doesn't, he doesn't do what a lot of, uh, a lot of podcasters or social media quote unquote intellectuals do, which is only talk to the idiots on the other side. You'll see that a lot that people will, they'll interview idiots and then make it look like that's what the other side is, which I think is really low. He'll talk to the intelligent people, the ones that are actually rational and, that's what I really, really love about listening to him. It's regardless of his viewpoint. You'll never hear a dumbass on his podcast, yeah. which I, I think is beautiful. But man, that apathy you're talking about, you know when I started to feel that way or why? It wasn't just the news stories. Uh, it was also what I was seeing on social media. Somewhere around 2015, I started to notice that friends of mine that are intelligent... Okay, these are not idiots. They're not those crazy people that you see online that you haven't seen for 20 years and their life went off the rails and they were always a little nuts and they're just posting some rant. Like These are people that I know in real life that are very intelligent, have their shit together kind of people. But they would post memes or ideas or spread an article or something that was clearly wrong. Like they'll like they'll post a picture of something and be like, look at this atrocity. But the picture would have be of a completely different event. And I'd ask them about it. I'd be like, look, man, the, that picture that you posted uh, isn't what you say it is. Here's the proof. And they'll say, yeah, but... This kind of stuff happens, so it's okay to leave that up there. It, it's, it's about the thought that counts. And I think that that uh, idea right there, I've seen it so many times among so many people. I assume that that is a widespread behavior. And once I saw that it's not just the news who's doing this, it's uh, people are willingly deceiving themselves and willingly deceiving other people in order to get a point across, that's when... I started to check out a little bit um, because if, if the people that I know and trust and respect are doing it uh, that much, then that means everybody's doing it. It's a breakdown of communication at that point, isn't it? If you can't trust that the other person is coming from an, a place of honesty, then you can't really have a, any kind of meaningful communication around that topic. And it is it's depressing. Yeah. That's why I have a filter on Facebook called Facebook Purity. Basically, I actually posted about this yesterday because I started a 5G rant. I was writing a post and the post said, 
Uh, I'll read it because it made me chuckle. I didn't want to say anything, but I have to. You fucking idiots and your 5G. Stop. And then I didn't post it. Uh, and then I made a post about my Facebook filter. And the, what I do with the filter is anytime there's a topic that I see is going viral, I'll put it in the filter so that Facebook doesn't show it to me anymore. It's made my life a lot easier. That way I don't get riled up by this stuff. So I added 5G to that to that filter because I don't want to see my friends that I respect pushing these ideas because I don't want to stop respecting my friends. I'll end up having bad relationships with everybody. But what about you, Erwin? Where do you get your info from? How do you know what to trust? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that about the Facebook filter. I actually recently installed one myself and it's basically called the the newsfeed obliterator. It just kind of stops you from <laughs> using Facebook entirely. And it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Like truly, truly wholeheartedly. I started listening to audiobooks almost immediately after to fill in the, you know, the vast swaths of new time that I've gained from not mindlessly flicking through the newsfeed. I find myself um, experiencing less kind of emotional extremes, even on a, you know, micro spikes as you kind of read through your newsfeed and go, oh God, that fucking idiot who, oh God, why would you post that? Like, why would you say that? You no longer have that as part of your day-to-day routine. So that actually kind of helps level you out. And I think it's been a really positive thing for me and much the same with Instagram, I try and avoid it. But to um, to go back in terms of like a meta sense of where you get your actual information about the state of the world and everything, not to harp on about it for too much, but if we, you know, let's say revisit the philosophy of Stoicism, one of the, the main things that you take from it is you only have so many fucks to give on a given day and you only have so many... <laughs> only you have 100% of fucks to give. Yeah. Well, the thing is that once you, you know, deplete those fucks, you're, you're pretty much done. I mean, you're drained emotionally, you're drained psychologically. And if you're giving those fucks to things that are outside of the realm of your control, then that's completely counterproductive. It doesn't help anybody. Like you need to make sure that if you do care and are invested in something that you exert some sphere of control over it or attempt to. Like for years and years past, my friend and I used to be, I guess, quote unquote, what you want to call activists. We used to go to rallies, um, super pro-liberal, like really, really kind of chasing that whole thing, especially as certain things were happening here in Australia back uh, closer to 2012. Now, nothing came of that for me. My, my life just got worse in every sense. We, we kept losing every battle because the right wing is so entrenched here. And on a personal level, I was just losing out because I wasn't chasing my business. I wasn't chasing my, my skill set. I wasn't growing as a person. I was just kind of wasting all of my time on these kind of activism events that really never eventuated, nor did the public want anything to do with us. Like we were always represented as, you know, dirty hippies or communists or all that sort of stuff. So at a certain point, I'm like, well, man, shit, if you don't give a fuck about me, I'm not going to give a fuck about you. So I'm going to re, you know, kind of re, um, I don't know, close myself back into my shell. Recalibrate. Recalibrate and kind of build from the ground up rather than trying to affect the world being nobody. So I would try and build my own clout and my own skill set and then bring those close to me into those ventures. Like let's say Submission Audio, which has allowed me to kind of bring some of my old friends and colleagues on board into something that's, you know, finally profitable for them in the audio industry and things like that. And my life has become so much better when I focus on the things that I can actually exert um, tangible control over rather than being so scattered and, and angry about all of these things happening in the wider world around me. That's probably the most practical wisdom I can offer to some of the younger guys out there. 
Man, uh, thank you for saying that. I want to echo what you just said. First of all, before I go on, I actually just did a podcast with Mick Gordon like two weeks ago. Hell yeah. and we talked about this topic. It's a great episode. I think everyone should listen to it. He's such a smart dude. Episode 261. But we talked about control and about worrying about the things that you can control. So about three or four years ago, or maybe three years ago, someone that we all know who is a pretty popular social media guitar player. He's actually really, really talented. He hit me up on Messenger. I think he must have been drunk, but he started bitching me out and basically saying, why don't you use your platform to spread this message? And I'm not going to say what message it was. Just Let's just say it was whatever political ideology he subscribed to. He believed in it so much that he wanted to spread it to the rest of the world. And he was mad at me because I wasn't using my platform of URM to spread that message. And he felt that I was being irresponsible because there are bigger things in the world than recording. And uh, okay, yeah, there are bigger things in the world than recording. But my philosophy on this is... I'm going to make my corner of the world better. So my corner of the world is uh, music, musicians, audio, producers. So I'm going to help uh, people who want to do audio for for real. I'm going to help them. I'm going to help people who maybe they don't want to do it professionally, but they just want to get better at it. And I'm going to help my friends who are professionals to try to help them become more known, which I think is more important than ever with the amount of uh, producers you have in the world. And I'm going to do my best to raise the bar for people in as much as I can. And not only that, I'm going to try to employ some people so that they don't have to have a job that they hate and they can pay their bills. And that's all I can do. And I think that that's a much better use of my time than worrying about causes that I have no control over. What I just mentioned, that's stuff I can control. I can actually help people uh, get better at this audio thing. I can actually help my friends who are producers become more known. I can actually pay employees. So in my little corner of the world, I feel like I'm doing good. I thought it was interesting, though, that this dude thought I was being irresponsible. Now, I feel like if I had listened to him and gone in that direction, I would have just been bringing tons of problems into my life. Kind of in the same way that you said that when you were becoming an activist, you had these these lofty goals you were going after, but nobody fucking cared and you were just making your own life worse. And then by focusing on yourself and focusing on what benefit you can actually bring to the people around you by, you know, helping them make money through music and making products that people can use to make their own music better. Yeah, maybe it's not developing a vaccine, but so what? This is your corner of the world and uh, you're doing your part to make it better. And that's, I think that's the most that we can expect out of anybody. So I see it. Yeah, 
I think I think due to the way that we've kind of grown up and evolved over the eons, we work best in small groups. And ultimately, when you focus on yourself and the tribe around you and bringing that up, I think that has a net effect of improving the world across the board rather than trying to go top down. At least that's my take. Yeah, I think as long as you're not talking about you know your tribe and ending the boundary there, because I think... <laughs> tribalism is probably something the world's going to get pretty au fait with over the next few months and, and something we definitely need to keep at bay. Oh, yeah. I agree. I don't know if tribe's the best word here because I completely agree with you on tribalism being uh, dangerous. And I, I'm sure that this is what you meant, but I personally just meant like I can only control my little corner of the world and try to influence that positively. Yeah, apologies. It was probably a bit severe to jump on that one word because I do understand the sentiment that you mean. And, and I think it's a very, very good one to concentrate on positivity in the world that you can you can actually affect. Yeah. Yeah. I think if that tribe encompasses, let's say in your case, AR, like the entire recording community that you can reach and affect and improve, then that's essentially what I mean. I don't mean like, oh, me and my immediate family and then the rest of the world can burn and, you know, everything else can go to the dogs <laughs> sort of thing. But it's you, you have to show a certain, I don't know, there's like a, a line in the sand for us because as, as far as, yeah, tribalism goes, it can be very dangerous politically. That's something we've seen. Bipartisan politics is extremely dangerous and extremely divisive and binary and just really limiting in someone's thought stream. But at the same time, when it comes to us being productive um, as individuals or on a ground level, we tend to work best in small teams. We tend to, our brains work best when we're not conceptualizing everything, like the larger picture. So there's an element of tribalism that is very helpful to us simply because of our biology. I think if you're mindful of that, you can use it in positive ways rather than the divisive negative ones. Yeah. I've got something I wanted to throw to you guys that's come into my mind while I've been talking that's kind of related to these topics, but it's something which I've become more aware of as I've had a bit more kind of downtime, especially in evenings and whatnot. Like I've noticed that some of these days I've been spending an inordinate amount of time talking with friends, fellow guys that are into recording or musicians, and just geeking out hardcore, like really geeking out crazily about recording and guitars and gear and stuff. And I've noticed that I feel like a way more irritable person after a day of doing that than I do if I haven't been as connected with that kind of part of my my interests. And I think it's interesting because it's something which I really enjoy. Like I have a lot of enjoyment for talking about these things that I care about. But at the same time, it's draining in a way. And I think I'm going to try and make a more concerted effort to make sure that I'm getting other sorts of interaction in my day in order to not just end up having my mind spin around constantly about production and gear and, and music. Have you guys experienced anything like that? I have a question. What do you think is causing that? I think it's just a hyper-focusedness on one thing. And it's definitely, if we were to talk about mindfulness for a second, it's definitely taking me way out of the real world and into a very internal kind of just internal thought kind of existence. Sorry, that's a really bad description. But essentially, I'm really retreated into my own skull for for a large time, a large portion of the day if I'm doing that. And then when I come back out into the real world, I'm just like, I'm just not connected with it at all. So I'm just trying to understand, before this uh, lockdown happened, would you say that you were uh, interacting with people less about this stuff? Like you were just kind of doing your work and kind of interacting about audio and music as per required for your work and maybe a little more, but then the rest of the time kind of focused on the rest of your life. 
I wish I could say it was <laughs> as, as, as healthy as that. It's definitely always had an element of this and, and sometimes quite a large element depending on what I'm working on. And you know, if I'm doing some kind of project um, with GGD or some kind of product development, then a lot of my time is spent doing research and thinking about these things. And uh, But it's just, you know, we're all, we've got less things to do in our day now. And maybe, maybe it's been there for a while, but it just seems to have become more apparent to me recently. So one thing that... Uh I have noticed before this crisis, this is something that I've just noticed over the years, and it might be related to what you're saying. I have a harder time, and it, this is progressive, like it gets more intense with every year that goes by, but I have a harder time hanging out with people and just talking than I did before. And I don't mean in a podcast scenario, but I mean, just open-ended, shooting the shit, geeking out. I have a lower and lower tolerance for it as time goes by. Even if it's on topics that I like, I start to get frustrated because I feel like, man, I feel like I'm wasting my time in a way because we're just, we're just mouth flapping, basically. I think it's it's something which is pretty well recognized that with age comes more and more disdain for small talk, I think. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, So, but it's not small talk because we're talking about things that I'm interested in. It's just that I just keep asking myself, what's the point? Hmm. And then I notice that I experience more burnout too because I'm working on this stuff you know, at 100% and then I'm talking to people about it in full-fledged conversations and... I start to lose balance in my life uh, and balance is already like really, really hard to achieve, but I'm always happiest when uh, I can exercise and listen to books or podcasts that have nothing to do with audio, think about things that have nothing to do with audio. And if all I'm doing all day long is audio related stuff, I start to feel like my brain is starting to fry, kind of, and I become more irritable. That sounds somewhat similar to what I'm describing, perhaps. During this lockdown, are you, you sharing a space with anybody, or are you just on your own? I'm in a very interesting scenario. I'm in my, my uh, mom's house. It's a really, really big house, thank God, because when the stalker showed up, so like I told you, I was going through this breakup, amicable, uh, and we were going to part ways at the end of... February, I believe, or uh, yeah, end of February. And so I was planning on basically taking February to find a place to go and, you know, move in at March 1st. Well, this stalker showed up, right? So out of wanting to secure us and not get killed, uh, I was just like, where can I go? I'm going to go to my mom's house and I'll start looking at apartments from there. It's a really big house, thankfully. But I kind of got stuck here because um, as I was looking for places, this situation just started to unravel. And before I knew it, it was impossible to look for places. So I'm kind of stuck around family, which is not so bad. Sometimes I would rather be by myself, but that's why I keep saying, thank God this house is big. I can kind of just be in my own world and not have to interact with people. Yeah, that sounds more positive than just being stuck there on your own. I don't, don't know what your situation is like, Ermin. Are you on your own? 
I'm in actually a very similar position as AL. I'm kind of in between relocating and I was kind of on my way to make all of that happen because I spent a lot of last year traversing through Europe to try and find a place to relocate to. Um, I ended up at a midway point living with my mother also um, while all of this blows over. So I'm in a very bizarre position. Unfortunately, not as big a house as ALs. So um, the the mania and the, the claustrophobia and stuff really starts to kick in a little bit. So certainly not as grounded as I would like to be. But it's been, I remember I said this to my friends really early on, like, this is a really good test of my philosophical convictions. Like if I can make it through this with my sanity intact, then then obviously the things I'm thinking or the things that I'm chasing are correct. So <laughs> it's an interesting position to be at. And again, to harp on it ad nauseum, the stoicism thing is like embrace the adversity and love fate, even if the fate is shit. So here we are, you know, Corona for the win. <laughs> oh man, I um, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name of this guy, but there was, there was a very famous guru that died last year, a Western guru who really popularized Buddhist concepts. And he died. And one of the things which I read in the obituary, what I read was um, a quote from this guy, but it was something like, if you think you are a, you know, a master of meditation, try spending a week with your family. <laughs> Good sentiment. This is coming from this guy who's, who is, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so I totally feel for you. I think though, on balance, it's probably more healthy to have some kind of social interaction, especially with people that aren't just involved with what you do for, for a job in the way that we're describing it. As trying as it might be at times, it might be just the thing that your brain needs to not just get completely uh, siloed up in, in work and music. Well, I'm, number one, extremely thankful that I'm not stuck with my ex. I love her and all, great person, but we split for a reason. And if this had happened three months earlier, I'd be in a very different state of mind right now because i I know I'd be feeling the claustrophobia. Also, I've been planning on moving to the West Coast within a year or two. So this is a great opportunity to spend time with the family. You know, hmm. mom's getting older. It is what it is, reality of life. So it's actually a really nice opportunity. And I needed also to stop traveling for a bit so I could focus on my fitness and personal things and it would just wasn't happening. There was no break in sight ever. Like nail the mix does not stop. It just goes on and on and on. So getting to just focus uh, for a few months is actually working out beautifully. Uh, this is probably the best way it could have happened, though I would be fine being alone too. True. I have no issues with that at all. It's kind of my, my natural state. So did I? <laughs> I'd be okay. <laughs> I definitely feel, when I think about it, I feel for, there's probably people listening to this podcast that are stuck in similar situations to the one you just described, maybe having broken up during this or just being on their own and being in a small place and not having any work coming in and stuff like that. And I just think about how, how bad it could be. I feel very, very grateful. I think a lot of people are not okay with being alone. I realize that that's not normal, but I do think that even if that doesn't come as normal to you, there's a lot of benefit in being able to be alone and not get lonely and not go crazy. There's a lot of good that can come out of being comfortable in your own skin and comfortable with your brain. One of the things that I've noticed online is you're seeing people crack from this uh, because they they don't they don't know what to do with themselves. And I hope that. I hope for those people that they take this opportunity to 
to learn how to be at peace with themselves because I realize we're social beings, but you should be able to hang out with yourself and be okay. And if not, there's a reason for it. And this is a perfect opportunity to figure out what that reason is. Like, why is it that you need a uh, constant stimulation from external sources or you go nuts? Like, if that's you, have you asked yourself why? Might be a good thing to figure out. I'm not judging, but it just might be a good thing to figure out. Absolutely agreed. Highly recommend it for people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think everybody is unfortunately, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but not, not everybody is geared to be the kind of type A introvert persona. And while it can be a really good personality type to have under these circumstances. Now it's built for quarantine. Yeah, likewise, man. <laughs> but, you know, many people weren't. Many people need that partying. They need the social stimulation. They need the water cooler talk about nothing. And, you know, as, as fruitless as that may be, ultimately that kind of small talk, it serves... A purpose for us and certainly for people that are geared towards, you know, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there that are wired to not um, have a conversation to achieve some deeper understanding or a meeting of the minds. They just facilitate a conversation in order to have a conversation. And that's just kind of the way that they're biologically built. And I mean, as insufferable as I find that personally, I understand that it's like a valid condition to be in. So I think those people will definitely be getting hit a lot harder than say you or I would Al. And Nolly, I'm not implying that you like frivolous small talk, man. Sorry. My my brain is like leaving, leaving me completely. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm in a similar boat. <laughs> Nolly is the last person I would expect to like frivolous small talk. But I, I really do think that even if you're wired to need that social stimulation, if this is driving you nuts, you should figure out why. I get that some people are introverts, some people are extroverts, some people are morning people, some people are not. We all have our natural tendencies. But if uh, being alone freaks you out and just having, just basic, I mean, being alone with your thoughts, if that makes you nuts, there's got to be a reason for it. Uh, I know extroverts who are perfectly okay to be alone with their thoughts. Uh a, uh, a shrink once explained it to me like this. An introvert gets recharged by being alone. So social interaction drains them and then they need to be alone to recharge. An extrovert gets their energy from social interaction and then when they're alone, that's when they get drained. But an introvert can still be social and an extrovert can still be alone. It's all about balance and about what your natural tendencies are. But if you're so introverted that being around people freaks you out, like you have social anxiety disorder, that's a problem too, which you should figure out. Just like if you're an extrovert and you get anxiety from being alone, well, you should figure that out too. These are just basic tendencies that people might have that you should still be able to overcome. People overcome them all the time. Yeah, ultimately life throws at us things and we take them based on, on how we're wired and they pretty much always presents challenges. So I think it's, it's kind of the journey of all our lifetimes to unlock our own mind and, and to understand why we do the things we do and why, why we feel the way that we do uh, in some attempt to maybe through that process end up as better people. I've always thought that the battle with yourself 
is the hardest thing. And the rest of the world is easy once you've <laughs> conquered that. It's pretty much all a battle with yourself at the end of the day. <laughs> it goes yeah, back to that thing about seriously. how we perceive reality around us. It's, it's all based on that. So you didn't tell us, are you at home with your wife? That's what you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm luckily at home with my wife who keeps me on the straight and narrow. And uh, there's no one I'd rather be locked up with. So I'm pretty grateful about that. She's, she's awesome. Well, that's and, great. And we have enough space here that, that we've got, you know, she's very creative, but we're almost diametrically opposed in certain ways, and that's a source of great, well, great entertainment, I suppose, and and it's a really, really good situation for me to be in, so I'm very grateful for that. Good, I'm really, really glad to hear that. Time for a quick word from our not sponsors. I hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I want to take a second to shout out Rode Microphones and Jason Turnbull over there, who has hooked me up and URM up and actually Ermin up as well and pretty much the entire metal community who is doing podcasts and uh, vocal recording. Uh, I don't normally talk up companies because I like to remain impartial, but every once in a while, somebody goes above and beyond with quality or with the way that they take care of people and Rode deserves a shout out. I am right now using a Procaster and a Roadcaster. And I think it's the best my voice has sounded in five years of the URM podcast. So if you're looking to start a podcast or do anything with vocal recording, check out Rode Microphones. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. 
How about work for you guys? Are you able to continue with like Nail the Mix in these times, for example? That's what I was about to ask you guys about. Okay, so with Nail the Mix, what's interesting is we're continuing with everything that we possibly can continue. So we're releasing the tracks, we're doing the Q&As, we're doing the mix polls, and we're just postponing the live event until travel opens back up and it's safe to go. And we're being very upfront with the community and letting them know that if they were subscribed during a month where it got postponed, even if they're not subscribed later, you know, like say travel opens back up in September and they're no longer members, they will still get a link to watch that live stream. So nobody is going to miss out on anything that they paid for. And to make up for the lack of those live streams, we've been going hard in the community. We actually, we started like six weeks ago because I'm, I'm paranoid. And uh, just from following this story, I had a very strong gut feeling that this was going to be real and that we needed to pivot to deal with it. And so I know that my employees must have thought I was nuts when I told them that in a few weeks the world is going to shut down and we need to pivot what we're doing to deal with it. But they went along with it and I'm very, very thankful that they did. But what we're doing was basically we stopped development on some new products. So like we did a boot camp with Will Putney, did a boot camp with Chris Crummett, and those are going to have to come out later. We're focusing really, really hard on our community. And I think that the work that we've done for the past five years with our community is really paying off now. Like all the, the positivity and the bonding and just the whole culture that exists in URM is basically perfectly suited for this situation. So one thing that happens a lot for instance, is when a member has a financial problem, other members will pick up the tab for them. This is something that's been happening for years. It's really incredible. Like someone will post like, I just got fired. See you guys later kind of thing. And then you'll see comments like, hey, I got you for a month. And the next person, I got you for two months. And basically they'll end up with six months. This happens all the time. This is like a regular thing. And so because behaviors like that are just a part of the way our community is. In this type of scenario, that's just getting amplified. So people are being super generous to each other. They're being super good to each other. And they've all got each other's backs uh, worldwide. And it's great. So as far as my end of the world is going, uh, I'm very, very thankful that we have focused on the things that we focused on as far as the community goes and we made a lot of changes in the past year and a half to how everything is run, to the website, like everything. We completely changed, like just about everything. And we did it just in time and it set us up for this. So I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. How are you guys doing? Yeah, well, first, I think it's it's awesome what you're saying. It's, it's very cool that you've built that community. And, and I think all of us are probably quite lucky in what we do as a line of work in this time, but education has to be one of the the coolest things that people could be doing to spend their time. I mean, even my, my mum has I started agree. doing an online course to study things, and she, she just texted me this morning to say she wouldn't know what she'd be doing with herself if she wasn't doing that now. And the opportunity now, if you want to learn a craft or learn about a subject, is you know as much as as much as you can take in a day, you can pretty much dedicate yourself to that. And I think we'll see a lot of expertise coming out of this this period. 
Yeah, I think a few things are going to happen. Um, number one, I don't think brick and mortar schools are going to go away, but I think that brick and mortar for things where you don't really need a degree or where you don't really need to be there, that's going to be severely hurt. Like, for instance, recording school. I think that the brick and mortar old school recording schools that cost fifty to $80,000 and barely teach you shit, uh, I think that those are going to take a severe hit. Art schools are going to take a severe hit. Like these lines of work where no degree is required, where what really, really matters is who you know and how much work you put in and how good you get. I think that those fields are going to experience a profound transformation. Uh, also, I think that, look, everyone deals with this their own way, and I'm not judging anybody. But one thing that is true is that the world is on pause for just about everybody. And so, you know, God bless you if you're an essential worker, but for everybody else who's just stuck at home, you can either waste this time or not. And you're probably never going to get another opportunity like this to just focus on learning something. One of the things that people complain about all the time is time, right? That's one of the number one reasons that people don't advance in things outside of their day job. Like for instance, on when people cancel Nail the Mix, we always find out why. And the number one reason tends to be not enough time, right? So I hear that all the time. Right now, that is not a reason anymore. So number one, you will never get another opportunity like this ever. Number two, when the world opens back up, it's not going to just suddenly bounce back to the way things were. It's going to be different. Nobody knows how different. I'm sure there's going to be an economic recovery, but how long that's going to take, who knows? And also what still exists, who knows, right? I think that the people who take this time period seriously and better themselves are going to be able to hit the ground running when things open back up. And that's going to be really, really important. So I urge everybody to basically sharpen the blades. And uh, as far as uh, courses and shit goes, like one thing that we've been doing is all our high-priced courses, we have discounted them by like 90%. So we're making it super, super easy for people to buy them. And we're streaming them in the group every single day. Uh, so you don't even have to buy them. Uh, we're just giving people stuff to do that's positive all day, every single day since this started. And again, this kind of goes back to what we were saying before. You make your little corner of the world better and that's all you can do. So that's what we're doing for our community. We want them to have the best possible outcome out of this shitty situation. That's the most we can do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Evan? How, how are things for you work-wise? You know, it's hard to complain. I think um, I, you know, First of all, I echo the sentiments that you guys shared. It was kind of nice just being a passive listener for a bit there as you kind of went on. I just kind of found myself nodding my head and agreeing with the vast majority so of it. kind of ranted. Well, you know, it's, it's your podcast, man. You're entitled to rant on it. And, uh, Thank you. <laughs> 
You're welcome. Um, so for me, I'm one of the few, I think, very, very lucky ones that I'm exceptionally uh, insulated economically. Unless the the AUD and the USD both like nosedive, I'm I'm okay and I can kind of coast for a while. This is a result of like judicious planning and saving over the course of my entire adult lifetime for you know the rainy day, which eventually finally came. Apparently, so being in this position, I find it remarkably difficult to make a call about where everybody else is or what the pivot point of the world. World, um, may reorient to. I don't really know where we're headed after this. I don't know just how hard everything is being affected, nor what what we might emerge into after this. I know that in my immediate world, other than like a reduction of the amount of people that are out and about and obviously cafes and um, operating at like minimal capacity and gyms being closed, everything is pretty much as business uh, as usual as it can possibly be. Like services still effectively running and society is still functioning as far as I can see. So it'll be interesting to see what knock-on effects there are. But I will say it's interesting and I'm not casting judgment on the way this has been handled by the governments or anything to that effect or implying that this is somehow wrong, but I find it interesting how the the crux of the burden of these situations is often borne by the youngest generation. And in this case, I feel like it's the people that are in their early adulthood, the ones who are likely going to be listening to this podcast, is that they're the ones that are faced with extra economic uncertainty. They're the ones that are faced with this whatever new paradigm might emerge on top of, you know, a potential climate cataclysm that we've been facing for decades now and everything else that's kind of snowballed for them. So I feel that it's it's kind of unfair. And again, because you're not bored of it enough yet, one of the, the stoic adages I love so much is um, it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I mean, such responsibility that they're inheriting and you have to feel for them. But I mean, I guess that's a facet of life. And if you guys are listening to this, I would imagine a lot of you are are very, very young guys getting into this business right now. And um, man, my thoughts are with you. I know what it's like to be there even under normal circumstances. So the idea of looking at a potentially uncertain future, I think you take solace in the fact that you have resources available to you as good as URM and NCM and all of the the systems and the the institutions that we have around us that we necessarily didn't maybe back in the 90s and stuff. So just the fact that you have this stuff accessible to you and you don't have to pay, let's say, $40,000 like I did for audio school, which was a tremendous mistake in retrospect, is, is really good, especially given that some of you guys might be looking at, you know, projected casual work or you're still part-time students or whatever. It's, yeah, I think it's just helpful for you to have that. So try and, try and think of it as a glass half full kind of thing. Thing as much as possible, even though it may be hard sometimes. I think you're right that it's not fair and that the young generation is going to shoulder a very interesting unknown burden. I also understand that for young people getting into music, they might be very scared right now, especially if you know they didn't go to regular college, they don't have a regular degree, they spent the last, say they're 23, and they spent the last six years just going hard on this and right as things were starting to work, uh, this happened. I just want to remind everybody that the music industry has been in crisis many times. There are basically 2000 through 2013, everybody thought that it was going to disappear. They thought that labels would be gone within five years. I heard that many times. Lots of great people left the industry. I know many people who were in bands and who were producers who got out because 
they didn't understand how they could have a future or there was a future. And it persisted. The industry persisted. It found its way out. And I do believe that this sort of thing will happen, whether it's downloading or coronavirus or whatever. There will always be periods where things seem uncertain. But what's not uncertain to me is people's love for music and people's need to make it. Why would that go away? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. We're talking about something that's age old. It's not going anywhere. The only thing that might change is how it's delivered. That's changed before. But the fact that people make it and need to make it and will need services around making it, it's always going to be there. And so if you can weather this storm and just keep on getting better, you know, find the way to make the most of it, going to be okay, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I actually think in a time like this that normality is on pause, it might be the arts that come out on top as some of the most uh, the most valuable things that, that could come out of this period. You know, I think more than ever people want music to listen to, art to consume in one way or another, and people have time to write and record their own music, which is going to need mixing and mastering by somebody. So, you know, if you're out there and getting into the the game, then there's probably going to be a lot more opportunities than there were previously. I mean, I know of major bands whose records or singles are mixed in the last two or three months that haven't yet been released, and I've heard from them or on the grapevine that they've gone straight back into songwriting mode instead of going on tour. So probably going to see quite a flurry of albums coming out in the next couple of months. Uh, hopefully not too many with cheesy kind of pandemic-related <laughs> subject matter. <laughs> No, I agree. That tracks with all the experiences that I've had as well. Um, most of the clients and colleagues that I've spoken to are just in complete hermit hibernation, like writing mode, just getting as creative as humanly possible. And I think you can kind of see that track with, um, if you were to look at sales figures for most plug-in companies, I'm guessing that most of them have had like a little bit of an upward swing because as everybody kind of hunkers down at home, they're getting hyper-productive and I think in some bizarre way, if you're in a segment of this industry, you've almost been inversely affected on an economic level um, to most regular businesses, which kind of puts you in this really hyper bizarre um, position and almost entrusts you with this bizarre extra level of responsibility to the people that you're serving with these these services. But it definitely tracks, um, Nolly, what you're saying. Like, I think we're going to see a flurry of amazing music come out over the coming months. And I, I mean, I certainly know that from having worked on some of your records over the last month or two or whatever it's been. I'm actually amazed that you aren't completely burnt out given the rate of work you've been putting out. Yeah, it's been it's been intense, but I think with time, somehow mixing's become less and less draining for me. Yeah, I think it's become quicker, actually. It's become more efficient and quicker. You've got to teach me a secret. <sighs> Maybe I just don't care as much. <laughs> That's rubbish. Actually, I think, um, I think, funnily enough, the mixes that I've done this year are probably the, the ones that I'm most proud of, and some of them came out some of them happened really quickly. I mean, you, you mastered the new Bleed From Within record that we mixed in four days. Uh, Gunzi the guitarist wow. came down. Well, I'd already mixed a single for them, which was done from the same session, so it was a basic template. And then he came down, crashed here, and we did the whole record in four days, and I think it came out pretty awesome. That's amazing, man. Yeah, but 
yeah, it's pretty cool. I definitely couldn't have done that done that a while ago. That's why I pulled out of this business. I can't compete at that level. I can't put out mixes like that in four days. There's no no way. It'd take me like two months. I'd need to want to kill myself <laughs> at least three times throughout the process, revisit the mix several times over, take two vacations. So I think I pulled out at the right time and got into <laughs> the right gig and left you to the right gig as well. I wonder if you've experienced this because you're, you're involved in product creation as well. But I think I'm in a very lucky position to be involved with product development through GGD, and also to have my foot in the the active uh, music mixing world, because in some ways I'm getting to explore source tone capturing at a much higher rate than people that are tracking whole albums. Because if you set up drums and then spend two weeks tracking drums, you're not really flexing those engineering chops after you've got through the initial kind of setup process. Whereas yep. I might set up, you know, three or four drum kits in a day and practice doing that, or my big thing for the last couple of years has been guitar tones. I've gone really down the rabbit hole, as I think you know, I mean, I've been trying to nail that that uh, early 2000s guitar tone that, that inspired me and I think probably inspired both of you guys as much. You know, collecting up a stupid amount of Mesa Boogie cabs from different eras and practicing micing them up and switching speakers around. It's When I think on that, that that's like this very compressed research period that you wouldn't get if you were worrying about studio overheads and, and getting through actual engineering of records. So I think that's something which is which has enabled the speed that I can mix because I know the constituent parts that make up my, my tones quite well at this point. So so I think that's quite a, quite a, a useful uh, position for me to be in that I'm grateful for. I totally know what you're saying about how product creation helps your ears because uh, I haven't made as many products as you, but I have made some uh, over the years. And the process of making those was probably the most hyper-focused I've ever been for an extended period of time on tones. Like, you're right. Like, when getting drum tones for an album, you take one to three days, maybe four, maybe five. But still, once you're done with that, then it's all recording. Maybe a little bit of tweaking, but the bulk of that detail work is done at the beginning. When I, when I made that, the Drumforge drum expansion that I did, uh, that was like three weeks of constantly working on drum tones. You just get hyper-focused in a way that creating records doesn't get you. Yeah, and I think there's actually a point of, if you, if you tried to be as fastidious during a recording session with a band and you're acting as a producer, if you tried to be as obsessive as you are when you do a sampling project or capturing impulse response or something like that, you would drive the band crazy. In fact, I think I saw an article oh, yeah. go out the other day, Matt Heafy talking about his experience with Colin Richardson. I don't know if it's just a personality mismatch, but he was talking <laughs> about how agonizing it was to spend two weeks getting guitar tones or whatever. So uh, let me tell you about that, um, because that happened at my house. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the drums happened at my house. This was in 2011. They booked three weeks, but they were there much longer than three weeks. It took three weeks just for Colin to figure out a kick drum tone. It took two weeks just to figure out where he wanted it in the room. And the drums sounded fucking incredible, though. I know this from when he mixed my band's record, that he's the most meticulous motherfucker I've ever met. Uh, he does not move on until it's exactly the way he wants it. But the thing that sets him apart from other people is 
You know, sometimes people, they don't have a very defined vision. They just know if something's wrong. And so they'll start chasing their tail and going in circles and burn themselves out and take forever. Maybe by chance, they'll land on something good, but it's by chance. Sometimes they'll land on something bad. In Colin's case, he knows exactly what he's going for and he doesn't stop until he's there. Even if it's 5% off, he'll just keep going and nobody gets in his way. It doesn't matter if there's a deadline or a budget or <laughs> anything. You can't stop him from taking as long as he's going to fucking take to make it sound exactly the way he wants it to sound. And uh, yeah, it can be excruciating. You know, I wish you could go back to 2005 and tell the people on the Sneakboard this because so many of them were just chasing their tails trying to get these sounds of guys that we loved like Colin and Andy Sneap, but they don't realize the kind of process, the mentality that goes into it, and not to mention the kind of budgets that have to go into a process like that and how ultimately irrelevant it was to bedroom guys operating in 2005 trying to use like, God, what were we using back then? Wagner Sharp or whatever freeware amp sims were out and about, you know? So it's like, you're never going to get that kind of an aesthetic unless you're going to spend two weeks moving a microphone around probably several dozens of different V30s because they all sound completely different as Nolly would be well aware at this point, different vintages and even different makes of the same, you know, year and batch just have variances. But like to someone like that, that's, that's part of the process. And that's just something that we kind of skipped over as kids back in the day. So I wish that kind of a wisdom is something you could impart to people in their earliest days. It would save them so much heartache. Absolutely. I can tell you two things about this that immediately come to mind. When Colin mixed my record in 2006, we had him for three weeks. Um, I went to London for it and we were in a really nice studio with a Neve and um, had three weeks. That's all the budget would allow. Apparently, that was like speed mixing for him. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, just to give you a little perspective, like that was him rushing a job, which is nuts. Imagine three weeks feeling fast for one mix. But the guy, like I remember the As I Lay Dying record, I don't know how many he did, but there's one where he went to California to mix it and he was there for four months. Sounds incredible, but he was there for four months. And um, we had Carl Bown on Nail the Mix. I think it was May 2018, uh, Bullet for My Valentine. And Carl is one of his protégés. And at that time, it was the longest Nail the Mix session that we had done to date. It could have been two hours longer, but we got kicked out of the studio after 12 hours. He still had two or three hours in him. That meticulous thing that Colin Richardson does definitely got passed down to Carl, but it was the same thing. It was no moving on until the job is finished exactly the way it needs to be. However, the thing is, that doesn't mean that that record, Nolly, that you did in four days is in any way inferior. So that's something that's really important for people who are newer to understand. You know, if they don't come from that old studio world or they have developed modern workflows or whatnot, just because it took you four days doesn't mean that you were any less worried about quality 
or anything. It's just what your workflow happened to be like. Yeah. You know? I, def- I mean, to make a point about that, I, I really romanticize that concept of, well, that, that idea of how Colin Richardson works. I think, and I'm not comparing myself to him, and I don't have the experience of him, but I think the difference is that I don't do that on a band's time. And that's something, that's a, a luxury that's afforded to me by the fact that in this modern day and age, I can make up my income from other streams um, that affords me the time and actually where, where my job is to do all of that kind of research and trial and error off the clock with a band. But I am super obsessive about it. It's just, yeah. I like to have knowledge on two sides. I like to have knowledge of the equipment that I have and I like to own the equipment that I use most of the time so that I do have a very good knowledge of it. Or if I know I'm going to be using equipment that isn't mine, I want to know as much about that equipment as I possibly can. And I, yeah, I want to have the knowledge of how to extract the best from it ahead of time so that when I go into tracking drums, it only takes half a day for me to get my tones because I know what I'm doing and I know what the variables that I want to mess around with are and I know what the things which need to be one way are and I know what things I want to experiment with or what's worked in the past. And I want to draw on that so that I can go into a, a recording session and not waste anyone's time, including my own, and, and walk out from it without having kind of burnt myself out and burnt out everyone around me. I'm curious, Nolly, um, do you find yourself with the extra income streams being more selective about which clientele you take on as a mix engineer these days? Because you obviously have the freedom. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's been something which has had to be quite conscious because from a business perspective, it's probably more worth my time to focus on products than it is to focusing on, you know, being a, certainly being a tracking engineer. I don't really track things apart from drums now. In fact, my ideal way to work, which I've done, for example, on both the records that you've mastered recently, Bleed From Within and Haken, is I've been involved in the drum production, like I've gone to the studio. In the case of Haken, I just went on day one, took a load of drums with me, a load of microphones with me, and then left Ray, who's a super capable musician. He, he can tune his drums perfectly, or you know, he can maintain the tunings that I do perfectly. And then I reamp the guitars with the band so that they're there to approve the tones, but they've tracked everything else themselves. And that way I get the really good balance of having source tones that I know everything about, without having to have been there for the whole tracking time because I do want to be a lot more selective about who I work with. I've definitely learned a truism that people talk about from day one, which is that you know bad music, you can't make that sound good, whereas really good music... I mean, you can make it sound good, but you can't make it engaging, perhaps. Whereas really good music pretty much mixes itself. And the last thing I want to be doing is taking on too many projects, as I've definitely been guilty of in the past, and kind of having some kind of resentment towards it which is ridiculous because it was my decision to take them on in the first place but you know there is a, a huge element of client satisfaction necessary with what we do in communication and things take time and you've got to try and get things the way the client wants and if you've got three clients simultaneously sending you mix notes for a whole album on one day when you've just been free for four days because they haven't been getting back to you that's just a bad time for everyone involved yeah, completely agreed. And it's probably one of the reasons I pulled out of the mixing gig as a whole. I don't think in the end I had the disposition to handle the, I think the intense demand on your time that mix engineering requires because it, it never stops. It's ongoing and somebody always needs something for something that should have been done however long ago. I think if you're 
if you're passionate about a project, it makes it much easier to make accounts for that to basically, you know, create some extra leeway for those processes. But if you're if you're treating mix engineering completely as like a, some kind of blue collar day job, I think one of the worst things that started happening to me is that I became almost resentful of music, or I just I stopped I started mm-hmm. losing the passion about it, which to me was like the point of no return. I'm like, there, there's no way I'm going to keep pushing forward with this when I have other avenues to make a living and I can keep this open to only work on the kind of projects that, you know, creatively enrich both me and the clients and we can go from there. And, you know, just very recently I came out of, you know, quote unquote, quasi mixed retirement to mix something for an old friend for a milestone event. And, you know, I'm, I'm keen for when that's going to come out. But that there's virtually no financial incentive for that. I've yet to invoice them. I don't even care if I get paid or not. I would have done it for free had the opera, uh, opportunity arisen. So I think that's it's an extremely privileged place to be in, to actually be able to exercise your passion as a passion and not be constrained to it feeling like some kind of stifling day job is one of the best possible things that I think maybe product development has done for both of us. Yeah. Ehrman, so what you just said really resonates with me. I think that it's very, very important to recognize what your disposition is. And there's some elements of the professional mixing or production world that are not right for everyone. You know, it's all about what you can tolerate and what you can't and um, really what you're okay with. For instance, that sort of thing that you just talked about, the waiting for four days of nothing and then one day you get every note from every band, that kind of stuff used to drive me nuts. And also, for instance, not getting paid by labels till like six months after the record comes out. Now, stuff like that, nobody likes it, right? It's not like any of our friends enjoy that. But the thing is, a lot of them have the disposition to tolerate it. And that's fine. That's totally cool. But if you don't have the disposition for that, you're never going to do the work required to stay on top, in my opinion, um, to stay on top of where your skills could be and to make it as awesome of an experience for everybody as it could possibly be. I think that knowing yourself is a huge part of this. Um, And there's many people who, they might not have the disposition for maybe being a touring musician or being a mixer, but they still have great talent and uh, great passion for stuff related to it and can find a way to utilize that Uh, profitably and enjoyably by just slightly tweaking what they're doing. Like for instance, product development, it's still, you're still using those same skills. You're still using your creativity. It's just in a different way that suits your personality more. And I think it's really, really awesome that you figured that out. You're probably way happier. Yeah, 100%. And I can I can certainly see um, how liberating it would be to somebody you know in either of our in any of our possessions really all three of us because one thing you know I guess this is basically true of aging in general but I've become much more um, aware of my time and its intrinsic worth and the further and further I went with you know music production as a service the more I felt that people were making unfair what I perceive as unfair impositions on my time which to me is irrecoverable and precious beyond measure, right? 
So to me, the idea of being able to double back and do product development, not only on my own schedule, but to actually invest all of my passion into creating the best possible product, which under most modern production circumstances, you simply can't do anymore. Because one of the reasons I burnt out in the end was I just kept getting MIDI files and vocal tracks and you know DIs and people assuming that that, that is what constitutes a record to a mix engineer, like that that's where your job begins. It's barely anywhere down the line. I mean, part of the whole art of tracking engineering is committing to the sounds and creating the fabric, the aesthetic fabric of a record before anyone's even touched an EQ. And I feel like a lot of that art has been lost due to bands doing a lot of the recordings themselves at home. But because that's the case, I feel like we can offer them so much more with great products such as, you know, the Gekko drums, um, drums libraries, the impulse responses, our virtual bass instruments, because you can literally load up these source tones the guys have virtually spent their entire adult lives chasing and just have them there immediately to pre-produce or demo your material to and i think that's just we're seeing this kind of a synergistic balance where we're constantly being tagged by people you know doing these amazing playthrough pieces using get good drums and our basses they almost come in tandem these days which i find really amusing yeah giga drums neural and submission <laughs> yeah yeah it's amazing and, and the yeah. funny thing is all great companies by the way let me just say I love everything that everyone just listed does. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is that it always comes in triplicate now. You'll always find us all resharing the exact same videos and, and the guys are loving it because they're getting all of this extra exposure to their music and we're getting exposure to the products and it's sort of this bizarre synergistic balance where everybody wins in the end. So I almost feel like a strange sense of zen about ending up in this position because as much as I'm um, being much more selective about where you can spend your time to max effects, I feel like it just kind of helps everyone on out a, a lot more and certainly allows me to recruit a lot more people around me and kind of enrich their lives as well. So win-win, I think. Yeah, you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago and we chatted. And I think it's been, yeah, an incredibly satisfying path, actually. All three of us, again, to bring it back to the Sneet Forum, you know, we're on forums, Sneet Forum a lot, trying to figure out how to get these sounds, failing at it, trying to achieve those sounds with products that, I hate to say, but a lot of the early software products they were incredibly pioneering in how they put together, you know, sampling engines and figured out how to model amplifiers and gear. But I think they often lacked the stewardship of people with sound design, you know, born out of real production experience. Yep. And I think we're now in that sweet spot where all three of us grew up trying to use those early products so we know the shortcomings, we're aware of what's good and what isn't about them. But we can also bring experience to bear from real world examples and chasing the chasing the dragon frankly on on achieving these uh, these amazing guitar tones and drum tones and bass sounds that we've aspired to since the early 2000s and they're now getting resynthesized by new people and kids aren't having to face some of the same impossible walls to climb that that we did before this technology was available and i think that's really satisfying yeah man it's great i can tell you with uh URM, one of the biggest driving factors of why I love doing it and why I wanted to do it was because of that time period of searching for those tones and not having the the tools or the mentorship or just the ability to to really do it. It was nuts to try to find any any info. Interestingly enough, I felt like I don't have it in me to be a great producer or a great mixer. I have it in me to be okay. 
but not compared to lots of my friends. They just, they have that in them, but I have been in it long enough and chased the dragon long enough to know exactly what goes into it. I have a passion for knowing what it is that great minds do to get great sounds. Like it's interesting, but because of having done it in real life for several years, like, and having known what it's like to not have info there, that's what guides this. That's why URM has been able to be relevant because it's coming from real life and it's showing how people who do it in real life do it as opposed to sometimes you'll see products on, well, educational offerings on YouTube from, and I'm not judging, this is more just a statement of fact, uh, from people who have never really made a record in a label situation. Maybe they chased the dragon, but never really worked with anyone that was incredible. So haven't had the opportunity to understand where the bar is at. Since we kind of do have that experience, it makes what we offer that much more credible and real. And I think that it's the same thing that you're saying with your product creation, because you have made records in real life that people love and listen to. That experience right there for years and years and years, starting with the Sneet Forum days where you probably didn't know what the fuck you were doing to now where you really do know what you're doing. But the fact that you went from zero to doing it for real informs your decisions when creating tones for a product. You actually know what works. It's not, it's not some abstract thing. You're not guessing. And I think that that makes your products way more valuable. I was just going to share my perspective on something which I've seen people complaining about, you know, us running the risk of getting homogeneity between all music because it's going to be created with the same tools. I think that's definitely something that could happen. Um, that's the kind of the way things could go bad. But I think the way that things could go good is us, for us to hear music that happens because kids aren't just getting sidetracked into how to try and make stuff sound half decent yep. and instead get to express themselves musically and for it to sound really listenable and for all of us to enjoy living in a world surrounded by great music that sounds great. And ultimately, if if I end up killing my job <laughs> as a mix engineer, you know, 10 years down the line because it's just not needed anymore, obviously some part of my ego will be hurt by that. But I think on the whole, that's that's a net positive for the world in that, you know, we all get to hear great music sounding good. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think the more you can empower people to just focus on the creative aspect without getting bogged down into the technicals like we used to for months and years, the better for everybody. But something kind of tangential I wanted to touch on from what AL was saying, uh, talking about pedigree and in terms of, you know, sharing information with people and, you know, varying degrees of clout coming from different sources. One of the funniest things for me is that when I wrote the systematic mixing guide, I was effectively nobody. I mean, I'm not saying I'm somebody now, but like back then you literally, if you didn't know the snakeboard, you didn't know who I was. Yet somehow that thing still caught on like wildfire. And there are two things that come of that, I think. One, just because you haven't quote unquote made it on, let's say a certain level, doesn't intrinsically decide qualify what you have to say. There's an element of luck and RNG to all of this, which is something that Misha and I talk about all the time, is how lucky we were to have been where we were at given points in time. 100%. The second point which comes of that is um, it doesn't happen overnight. 
like I've I've been at this for 15 years maybe like on a quote unquote professional level and I think it only really kind of quote unquote happened maybe five to six years ago and many of the steps many of the plateau breakers were completely tangential um there were there were things like let's say the systematic mixing guide I became a lot more known after writing that certainly not from laboring and working on local bands for years and years and years and then the second one of course was that one day where I was just remastering Obzen for fun and I shared it with you, Nolly, and then you kind of shared that with Misha and then, you know, the rest is history and this kind of led into this bizarre new career in mastering that I never envisaged as a young guy. But it speaks to the power of being malleable and allowing the current to take you where it's going. Don't don't fight all of the opportunity that you're given just because it goes against your initial convictions or whatever predispositions you may have because you never know where you might end up. I can't echo that more. I mean... I ended up in periphery playing bass, which was not my main instrument. And I, well, I actually did say no as my initial reaction and then thought about it and said yes, because I thought, no, I'm a guitar player. I've just finished or was in the process of finishing music school for guitar. I had a band where I was the lead guitarist. I loved guitar. I didn't care about bass or I didn't have any awareness of bass. And that was definitely one of those kind of forks in the road that's that's led me to the place I'm at now where I'm, I'm super, super thankful. And I, I loved playing bass and I got exposed to unique opportunities because I was one of a kind within a band rather than being one of three guitarists and, you know, really high profile guitarists too. So I think being malleable is, is a huge skill. How, how have you found it moving to mastering? I mean, has that been something that was difficult for you? Or do you really enjoy it? How would you feel if you didn't mix another record in your life? <laughs> uh, well, I'd feel pretty good if I never had to mix another record in my life. Thank you for asking. But that, that aside, that aside, the, the mastering, I think initially I was quite hesitant. I wasn't, it was never one of my passions per se. I was never one of those guys that read Bob Katz's book and worshipped it and wanted to get into that line of work. But I think over time, it grew on me first as like the validity of it being a day job. I think as far as service-based uh, work provision goes and music production, mastering is probably the most cushy gig that you can land. So I had to become aware of how lucky I was to be in that position and to not squander it. But as we kind of moved past that with, you know, let's say whatever, monetizing the, the mixing guide and then releasing, you know, products through submission and stuff, as it's kind of liberated me to take on more gigs that I enjoy, such as, you know, the many projects that you did last month, it's kind of enriching in its own way and not only that one of my favorite new things that's come about only very recently is that as I've stopped taking on mix work there's come about this natural kind of um, conundrum like well what do I do with this I can't just stonewall these bands and say oh good luck find someone I, I need someone to refer them to and I actually managed to get in touch with a really really super talented guy who I think was a URM member or still is called Asher Ally or Asher Ali I'm, I'm sorry if I'm mm-hmm. butchering your name um, from the after image and you know, from the first moment that we worked together on some random mastering thread we was trying to get like free mastering for his band, I I heard something intrinsic in his mix work and I, I knew, I saw that spark of potential. I'm like, if any motherfucker out there is going to be able to do what maybe I would have been able to do in 20 years had I had the, you know, the tenacity to stick with this, it's going to be this guy. And as we've kind of worked together over a couple of projects, as I farm out, let's say, 80 to 90% of my mix work to him, 
watching his skill develop to a knife point has been one of the most enriching things like on a completely financially decoupled level that I've experienced in this industry. It's almost like the kind of people that you would touch with URM or the mixing guide, but on a super visceral one-to-one level over a protracted period of time. And I think that's been one of the the greatest knock-on effects for me. And I look forward to doing the same thing with other super talented guys like Adam Bentley, who I farm out a ton of mixed work to as well. And just, I think being in this position where you like kind of transition from being the the hungry green kid always vying for new work to being maybe fitting more of that mentorship kind of sage role where you can kind of guide the next generation of guys doing this has been tremendously satisfying for me. Yeah, you have to remind me of the name of the first chap because I, I, I haven't come across this stuff knowingly, but Adam Bentley is someone I am aware of and he's he's a really, really talented kid and his, the music that his band makes amazing. Yeah, amazing. You guys toured with them. Oh, sorry, not you guys. You're yeah. not in periphery anymore, but the periphery guys toured with them recently. Yeah, me in a parallel universe that didn't leave the band toured with him recently. <laughs> Pre-recorded Nolly backing track toured <laughs> yeah, with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there in computer form. I have actually met Adam too. I met him briefly because he recorded some tracks on an instrumental record that you mastered for a chap called Gavin Kennedy, who's a very talented songwriter from Nashville. Awesome record. I went over for the for the album release, and Adam was there, and he's yeah, super nice chap, very talented, and I've been really pleased to see to to hear the music he's been making, and he's definitely one of the torchbearers, I think, for, for the next generation. Hundred percent. It's really really awesome to see people flourish talent wise and career wise. Uh, it's one of my favorite things about this. Ermin, I want to I want to respond to something you said about ten minutes ago. So about the systematic mixing guide and you saying that you were a nobody at that point. First of all, I don't think you were ever a nobody. You were just unknown at that point. But like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the person who wrote that is now making products that are really good and also, you know, is well-respected for mastering. Like it's, the these things aren't, they're not unrelated. Uh, so no, that's number one. So I think that, you always had something legit to contribute. Maybe you just weren't known yet. So that's very, very different than what I meant when I said that uh, a lot of info comes out from people who don't know what they're talking about. I don't think that having worked on big records is what matters. It's obviously is knowing what you're talking about. And that's also why we feature people who aren't very known yet, but who we feel are great. So I would say that... Uh, You've always been legit. That was just your first big thing. I think you got to ask anyone that was on the Sneep forum in the mid-2000s what they thought of Ehrman at that time, and he was an incredibly terrifying figure of knowledge and skill <laughs> at that time. That's what I'm saying. Like You're not nobody. That's a much nicer way of framing it, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My, my ego needs this boost at 1am as my brain slowly <laughs> shuts down. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm here for. I just don't think it's an accident that like uh, you didn't just write it out of nowhere and then disappear. Like that was part of this really cool career that you've built and it makes perfect sense to me. And also the thing about luck is really, really crazy because I'm one of those make your own luck types. However, the things that are outside your control that affect your career have always blown my mind. Like for instance, that my best friend Finn decided to move back to Seattle and happened to know Chase Jarvis from Creative Live and got that job and then created the audio channel, which was kind of what led to all of this, you know? 
I hadn't met Finn through Metal Sucks because we both wrote blogs for them. Uh, and we happened to both go to the Golden Gods 2009 show where we were introduced by the Metal Sucks guys. That's just luck. You know, if he had decided not to go or I had decided not to go or he decided not to move back to Seattle, who the hell knows? So those kinds of things have always blown my mind, like meeting that right person at the right time for the right thing to happen. Yeah, 100%. Can't plan on it. It's that cross-section between, you know, having the skill set and that meeting with the opportunity and the opportune time. It's really, all you can really do is hone your skills to be prepared for that moment. You can't necessarily guarantee that that moment will ever come, but to a certain extent, you can put yourself in positions where it's much more likely to eventuate. So yes. it's, I think it's the way that Misha and I normally kind of frame it when we're talking about it is there's a tremendous element of luck, but to some degree, you do make your own luck. And so long as you enjoy the process and ultimately what you're chasing is a hobby, you'll never feel shortchanged, even if you never quote unquote make it to the levels that you're envisaging. Yeah, I think that requires a lot of self-honesty. Yeah, completely agree. Funny is going back to what you were saying and how all of this has merged for all of us. One of the things that I love about this is the networking opportunities that it's created, not just from a business sense, but the kind of insight I've been able to gain from different people. Because you you brought up um, interviewing Mick Gordon uh, two weeks ago, Al, and we were actually mm -hmm. um, we we're actually on the phone about a similar time ago where I was having the most fascinating, like I'd say I call it a conversation, but really it was just me listening as he was telling me about like John Carmack's code still being in the id tech seven engine, which to like a geek like me is, I was just mind blown. I'm like, Oh my God, you're telling me John's code from 1999 is still in doom eternal. And I'm learning all these things about the video game music industry that I never would have picked up on otherwise, you know, without access to someone like that. And I think that's one of the things that I'm ongoingly tremendous thankful for, not only for guys that you get to, let's say, quote, you know, mentor or tutor, but the guys that you get to get information from in kind. And it kind of shows you almost like the the natural ebb and flow of an industry like this and how it fundamentally functions. It's almost like a little ecosystem unto itself. And to be a part of that in some meaningful way is probably one of the most satisfying things about all of this. I love it. Love it. I want to loop back to something that we were talking about earlier. Sure. It occurred to me at the time. I've just re-remembered it and I don't think we're going back to that conversation. So I'm just going to shoehorn it in right now. We were talking about Colin Richardson for ages and about how long he likes to take, or yep. rather not likes to, but how, how insistent he is and how long he's willing to take to get tones the way he likes. And I just wanted to throw a comparison out there to our Lord and Savior, Andy Sneap, who united all of us 10 years ago or whenever. Since <laughs> it seems like his approach is not opposite, but definitely a lot less uh, fussy with regards to getting the tones. And I'd argue his results are equally good, if perhaps not even better, dare I say. I don't know what you guys think. I think they're neck and neck. Like, it just depends on the record. They're both like the gods of that era, in my opinion. But, but that's exactly what I meant when I said that just because you spent four days on that one record, it's that doesn't mean that you're any less invested in it. It's just hmm. whatever your process is. And I think Andy's process is definitely faster than Colin's, but that 
that has nothing to do with the quality of the work. Yeah. I think that you can't escape the potential of a record. This is going to be like a really weird metaphor here, but I think of it kind of like lap times in a car, right? So a certain car on a certain track can only ever do one perfect lap. Let's say it's like 2.15. As a recording engineer, all you can all you can really do, you're basically the race car driver. All you can control is how close you get to that perfect lap, however long that might take. For some people, you might get it in two laps. For other people, it might take 200 laps. But really, the only thing you have any realm of control over is how close you get to the ultimate potential of what the music is presenting you. I think the fact that those guys work with some amazing artists on some amazing records shaped a lot of what we love about their work. And as much as, you know, not many of us are going to get the privilege of spending three weeks on pulling a guitar sound or, you know, changing guitar strings after recording every two riffs, we can take solace in the fact that Nolly knocks out records, you know, in four days or that Snape kind of doesn't really care about, you know, how tight double tracking is anymore, just so long as it feels right in the mix. It goes to show that everything is valid so long as the fundamentals are done correctly. Yep. Yeah, I think I think I was more responding, like when, I, when I'm thinking about that, I think I was thinking about your comments, Erwin, about how perhaps people didn't realize the length that people were going to, to to capture these sounds. And something that's become really apparent to me as I've collected up all of these Mesa Boogie caps is certain ones... <laughs> have the sound. Like, certain eras of Vintage 30, it's not even really about the cab enclosure because they're pretty much the same. As in, between different of the same type of Mesa Boogie oversized angle, there that you can put the speakers in any one of them and they're still going to have that magic to them. And I firmly believe that, you know, Andy's cab, which I've bothered him about a lot for the last year or so, <laughs> he's grudgingly given me more info about. I think he just got one that happened to have an era of vintage 30s in it that sounded amazing and I, I can say from the cab which I have here which sounds pretty close to his you put a 57 anywhere that's not stupid on it and it sounds amazing and you put any any mic on it in a, in a place that's not stupid and it sounds amazing and you can pretty much just move on once you've got that and that's, that's quite liberating so I do want to just throw out there that I think there are certain puzzles to which there are quite simple keys that just involve having the right bit of equipment when it's something as crucial as a speaker cabinet or an amplifier. And I don't know whether it's that those guys created the sound that we then saw as our ideal or if it's just generally that that's what we heard and therefore gravitated towards. But it's not a particularly laborious exercise to get an amazing guitar tone out of you know, said cab, for example. Completely agreed. I think it's similar to lots of things in audio. Like, for instance... When choosing a sample for a drum, if you pick the wrong sample to reinforce your snare with, you're going to have a really hard time getting it to work in the context. But if you take the time to pick the right one, as long as you don't do anything stupid, it's going to work, most likely. I feel like it's the same with synth, too. Once you find the right setting or the right pick the right synth or whatever, your life is going to be way, way easier. Things will happen way faster. I think it's about taking the time to figure out which tools are right for which job and not stopping when something's wrong for the job and trying to make it work when it's not going to work. Absolutely. I had to get that out there. I had to talk about Snape. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I love his work. Going back to Snape, you know, there's... there's Probably one unresolved thing I have from all the years that I spent on the Snape board and the subsequent years since then, I never really got a chance to thank Andy for basically 
giving me a career in this business. I know that back in the day, I think I would occasionally say some twatty things on that forum and I think I may have punished him a little more than I ever intended to. And as a result, we've never really developed a relationship. But if either of you either ever speak to him at any point, please do convey to him my sincere and heartfelt thanks for basically allowing me to live the life that I lead and the fact that, I mean, he he basically facilitated that for so many of us and we're eternally grateful. <laughs> He's the godfather. I'm sure have a, a typically dry northern humor response to that if, if I put that to him. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure he would. So I don't want to take up all your day and all your night because I know it's night for you. So uh, we've got some questions here from the audience. Do you mind if uh, we go through a few of them? Please. Please do. All right. From Tyler Pilot. For Nolly, why am I so bad at this? For Ermin, why am I so bad at this? <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you want to take that one, Nils? <laughs> yeah, because you suck. No, no, I'm joking. You probably just haven't spent enough time on it, I guess. That's probably it. And and not just time practicing the craft, but time listening, you know, with, with critical ears to things. I sucked at it for ages. I went on to this Andy Sneap forum that we keep talking about, and I was a total noob, and I sucked at it. And I didn't even know that I sucked as badly as I did until I started getting, you know, mixed criticisms from people. But with time, I got better at it and my ears got better and things go in peaks and troughs. I was, I was about to say they, they kind of go exponentially, but they don't. I think they go exponentially for a while and then you hit a plateau and then another plateau and then another plateau. And if you love it, you'll just keep going and you'll eventually achieve things that you, uh, that you always wanted to. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, uh, you probably just need more self-loathing in your life. If you if you don't hate yourself while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, you're probably not excelling. <laughs> no, yeah, but huge think... thumbs up for me. <laughs> Self-hatred is no. necessary. <laughs> no, but honestly, I think, um, you know, a big one from the David Goggins school of thought is if you're not suffering, you're probably not growing on some level. So you need to make sure that you're challenging yourself, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're trying a new mix technique or whether you're trying you, you cab miking technique or something like that, you have to push yourself into a realm of discomfort. And this applies as much to, you know, working out as it does to race car driving, as it does to pretty much any other pursuit in life, whether it be building a business or network or whatever. So, as so long as you're in a place where you're constantly challenging yourself, you're making sure that you're living up to whatever your, you know, end potential might be. And I have confidence that if you stick with it, one day uh, you will not suck and it will be great. All things will be good. It's all about sucking less, basically. Through suffering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Subhajit Pandit says, Nolly, when you are handling the mixing and Ermin the mastering, how often do you guys go back and forth? This is pretty funny. We don't really talk at all. In fact, we had like the first conversation in years a couple of weeks ago. Oh, it's, it's quite a bizarre dynamic that we have. It, I typically, just to keep things separate and also so that business things don't get confused because clients get confused, I generally like them to approach Ermin separately to approaching me. And when I finish the mix, I send the files to the band and then them or their management forward them to Ermin. And we pretty much don't exchange a single word. Yeah. Pretty much. I think when we first spoke like a couple of weeks ago after years, I referred to it as having a benevolent ghost in my life that would just send me work. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is really nice. But it was, it was a really bizarre relationship. I just kind of assumed that he would sign off on everything that I did because I kind of sent it back and nobody ever complained. But I think uh, only recently have we started becoming a bit more interactive with it. And I think I personally prefer it on this level. I'd like the, the safety blanket of knowing that if he takes issue with something that I do for his clients, that he 
he'll bring it up with me and then we can course correct and, you know, our work can keep developing and growing in a good direction. Though it's been kind of difficult over the last month because he's been firing records out so rapidly that I've barely been able to keep up on the mastering fronts of things. And it's usually like, Haken was like, hey, Omen, here, here are the mixes. It's fucking due tomorrow. It's like that that was the lead time was like one day. And I'm like, well, there's going to be no revisions, obviously, so I better not fuck this up. And so, yeah, we get a lot. Of- I couldn't believe it. Like, 10 days later, they released the first single as well. I don't know if that was planned, but that was insane. I mean, they kind of stumbled upon some weird luck with the subject matter of that record kind of coinciding with this time frame. And I think maybe they're trying to capitalize on on the coincidence. You know, I'm not saying that they've written it for this moment in time specifically, but there's, there's a certain kind of poetry to it coming out right now. Yeah. Although I think the actual story of the record is not so much about a pandemic and more to do with the development of that character. Sure, sure. The Cockroach King. But then the name of it's really on the nose. <laughs> What's sure. the name? It's called Virus. And they decided that <laughs> months and months ago. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with what's going on. That reminds me of uh, Slayer. God Hates Us All. Yeah, on 9-11. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what? A, what a <laughs> I remember I had a Guitar World magazine that I'd bought on a trip to the States and happened to flick through close to and then again after 9-11 and it hit me at that point the tragic coincidence in in that yeah that that was that that's one way to put it okay so from colby hempel he's got one question for each of you this one's for nolly actually before we answer colby's question i just want to put one little more comment into that conversation sure i just want to be clear that the reason that i don't see the need to communicate with ermin during the process because i have 100 percent trust of what he does to the point that i barely even will listen to the master until the record's out and on Spotify or whatever. <laughs> like, and, and to be honest, a lot of the time, I mean, you preserve my mix really impeccably. Like I, when I do get involved in mastering criticism, like for example, with, with uh, Bleed From Within, you were sending over single masters while Gunzi was here and we were mixing and we did a blind test, both of us up here using that fabulous Hoffer software. It took a few flicks between them before we could accurately identify which was the mix and which was the master. And I take that as a huge compliment and also makes me feel very safe that you're not just going to fuck up my mix, which you've never done to this date. So it's all based on trust. Oh, that's awesome. But at the same time, it's almost a blessing and a curse because a lot of people, um, you know, they'll, they'll go off our working relationship over the years and then send over a mix that could be called let's say rough under the best case circumstances and they just expect that I can work this kind of crazy magic in order to turn it into this Nolly-esque product and it's like that's not really what mastering is about. I mean the idea is that you should be sending me something which already sounds kick-ass and I should be making it sound even more kick-ass but on a wider variety of speaker systems. That's kind of, that's the the job description and if you if you want something more than that, what you're looking for is a mentor which, you know, something I'm, I'm happy to get into and as as time develops more and more I find mastering engineering is developing into a more of a mentorship role where we kind of guide people through how they build their mixes and I think ironically in some way they tend to get a lot more benefit from that mentorship than they get from the mastering process itself which obviously Nolly doesn't need in the slightest which is why our dynamic is so very straightforward and simple and beloved by me. <laughs> I'm wondering didn't Jens Bogren like about 10 years ago have some kind of some kind of service as part of his mastering package, which was like a mixed criticism before you send him the final master. It seems like quite a crucial step if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I recall that happening. I could never work out how to charge for something like that though, so I just kind of bundle it as part and parcel of the mastering process. That's great. I don't remember if Jens did that, but I'm not surprised. 
Okay, so Colby is wondering, Nolly, when augmenting live snare tracks with sampled rooms, are you matching the samples to the live snare's pitch? Broadly. I mean, I don't like the sound of a low-pitched snare in the close mics, whether it's a sample or the real one, followed by the sound of a really pingy snare room channel. And thankfully, just through GGD and through me having samples of most of the productions I've worked on, as well as personal samples that I've made on other projects, I've got quite a fine array of different snare tunings, a lot of which have been done in just a handful of rooms. So even if you know certain songs on a record have a different snare tuning, I can typically pull a sample of the same room, but with a lower tuned sample, say, to match a lower tuned natural snare and and you wouldn't know it kind of sounds like everything's coherent so mm -hmm. yeah i definitely don't like a big mismatch and and i don't really go for the layering a high tuned close sample with a low tuned close mic or vice versa i, I tend to like to just hear one drum at a time got it okay ermin his question you kind of somewhat answered a little bit before but i'm going to ask it anyways because i think that could zero in on it a little more. Uh, when receiving the mix from someone as seasoned as Nolly, what do you seek to add in the mastering phase? Do you try not to alter the mix too much in this case? Yeah, right. Well, I guess if you rants enough, you kind of you know get the whole spectrum here. So I guess we're touching on the same point. <laughs> but I'll try and elaborate a little bit. If you could elaborate maybe also on, say, what is the difference between when you have to be heavy-handed versus not. Sure. So when it comes to mastering, one of the hardest things we have to do is work backwards. So if somebody has overcooked a mix, which occasionally people tend to do, um, they'll tend to look at, let's say, Nolly's mixing videos and say, hey, I need to kind of annihilate my snare with this you know, mix bus compressor setting on the master and then saturate the crap out of it with VTM. Now, if you know what you're doing, those can be amazingly powerful tools. But more often than not, I'd say 80% of the time, I would get an absolute just mess of a mix and go, they cannot understand why we can't work backwards from there in order to get the sound that they're chasing. So one thing I always advocate is to undercook as opposed to overcook. If you don't know what you're doing with a mix bus compressor, believe it or not, you're actually better off not having anything on the mix bus at all. This is something where, you know, Mark Lewis and I meet eye to eye, like real big time, where we just try and minimize all of our top-down processing on certain elements, especially, and I, I advocate this more as a, a universal approach because it's much easier to not ruin your mix doing that. The reason that it works for Nolly is because he's been doing this for a very long time and he knows exactly what those processes are doing to his mixes. So in his case, it'll tend to depend on some mixes. He'll send them a little bit more cooked than others. In some cases, I'll have to really kind of tailor the sub-low to make sure that it's portable and doesn't blow out, you know, your car system. Uh, on others, it might come in maybe a little bit dull and I'm looking where to strategically lift the high mids and the top end. Um, but it tends to be a gradual process of very minute, and, and people will know this if they follow me on Facebook, that I make a lot of jokes about making EQ moves in 0 0.02 dB increments. And I wish I were kidding. I really do. I really do. But uh, unfortunately, that's a part of the process. And with enough of those moves across the spectrum, with enough kind of gradual saturation and little compression processes and various forms of limiting and the kind of things that you pick up with each stage of processing, it tends to kind of create a cumulative difference that's quite notable. Now, obviously, in the case of someone like Nolly, I have to be very light-handed in many cases because he really knows what he's doing these days and he references our prior work in order to achieve his mixes. So they're getting closer and closer to the mastered thing. Whereas for younger guys, it might be a matter of really getting in there and carving away some mids and really lifting like 
like, you know, 3DB on the top end. Yeah, that's cool. Got it. Okay, Jacob Turco has a question for both of you. Do you use some analyzer tricks for balancing volume of the bass against the kick drum as well as the bass's dominant frequencies to its harmonics? Whenever I start looking at the EQ too surgically, I'm never too sure what to keep, what to cut, or when simply to lower the volume. I think that's something just where experience comes in. I think, and even it will change from mix to mix. I think um, some mixes I, I use a lot of analyzer kind of tricks to try and get the low end right if it's not coming together quickly. In other ones, it just happens like very, very easily. I think it depends on, on the arrangement a lot of the time as well and the kind of range that the instruments are playing in. But I, I do really like to use analyzers and you know I, I use them at different amounts of resolution and different slopes depending on the instrument that I'm working on because sometimes too much detail is um, kind of handicaps my workflow and sometimes too little detail might make me you know, if you've kind of got a very smoothed out slope of the low end, you might be cutting in the wrong places if you're just going by eye. But I think it's a general rule, and this is maybe a bit bit of a bad thing to say, really. But I think if I'm hearing something and it sounds good, but it looks wrong on an analyzer that I trust, I'll tend to trust the analyzer over my ears. Because more than often what happens if I don't do that is I come back to it later or the next day and realize that I just lost a bit of perspective. So I do rely fairly heavily on analyzers, but I know what I'm looking for out of them. And I'm creating the character of the sound before I pull up the analyzer as well. Like I'm working with source tones that have a character that that's going to lead to a good mix. Or, you know, I might work with a, a less surgical kind of EQ or compression mm-hmm. or transient designer to get things into the ballpark before I start the, the super analysis. Awesome. Great answer. Uh, well, first off, hey, Jacob, uh, we've worked together before and we hung out in Prague a couple of months ago, so it's good to hear from him again. In terms of the way I do this, I would say 90% of the time, everything done regarding the low end is done entirely with my ears. The only time I'll actually look at an analyzer for anything is to maybe isolate where a kick drum peak is sticking out uncomfortably. If I'm working on like a rapid fire collection of music, like let's say the mixes are wholly different, the resonant frequencies of the kicks are sitting in different places. and I I feel like if I'm going to try and zero in on that purely with my ears, I'm going to burn myself out. Well, it's much easier to just load up an analyzer and see where that low end is peaking, especially if that peak is excessive and I need to pull it back in. Aside from using it for like convenience purposes to stop myself from burning out, whenever I go in for the final check, um, the final spot check is always all ears. I've always found that to be the most finely calibrated instruments or um, you know measuring tool for you know, handling these things. Okay, last question. This is from Mazzy Jamnashan, and I'm guessing that this is for you, Nolly, but honestly, I don't know, because he didn't say. Uh, at what point did you decide that you wanted to learn about electronics so that you could alter your existing gear? How deep down the rabbit hole of electronics and electrical engineering did you go? Soon after our last podcast, I guess, so about three years ago, I kind of felt like I had enough control over the drum side of things, engineering-wise, for that not to be such an active focus of mine of experimentation. And I turned my focus to guitars, which had long been this kind of pink elephant in the room for me because I'd gotten into production as a guitarist and all I wanted was for my guitar tones to sound awesome and then I got totally distracted by this huge world of engineering every other instrument. And I always felt like I had a relatively decent ear for what I liked, but I didn't necessarily have a a good way of achieving it that was consistent. And so that just became my new obsession. And 
I started reading up about electronics and taking apart my amps and just wanted to be able to see the schematics to know what the difference was because I'd started buying a few different amps that I thought would solve my tone quest and they might be 85% of what I wanted but there'd be something weird about it like maybe the gain's just a little bit too flubby or maybe the EQ doesn't react quite how I like another amp's EQ to react and I didn't want to just keep buying amps which are expensive things to buy <laughs> just to see if someone magically has put these elements together in a way that I liked so I mean, I, I kind of intuitively knew that there couldn't be huge differences and the, the deeper you go into the electronics, you, I'm not saying it's not an incredibly specialized and deep field, but there are certain things that you can understand quite quickly, like high-pass filters in the gain stage and how the tone stack works, so how the, the bass, mid, and treble uh, controls work, and the negative feedback, so you know, general negative feedback and then the presence and resonance controls that some amps have. I mean, if you understand those things you can start playing around with the values of them or even just looking at schematics of amps that respond the way you like and just copying those over. So I think the first thing I did was basically turn about three other amps into 5150s because that was, <laughs> that was what I wanted them all to sound like and I changed basically all the parts that made the major difference. How close did they get to 5150s? I mean, close enough. Some of them were EL34 amps, so it kind of failed that. I got my, my 50 watt 5153 to sound near as damn to my block letter. I mean, it doesn't have quite as much depth, which I think is because it's a 50 watt with smaller transformers. But once I'd done that, I, <laughs> I kind of did that a bit. And then I was like, okay, this is really pointless. I've just got loads of different 5150s. And to be honest, I'm still going to plug in the actual block letter 5150 if that's the sound I want. So, you know, from that point, I just started thinking, well, what, what are the little things I can do to maintain the aspects that I do like about these amps and, and just tweak them in tiny ways? So, like my Friedman, I did like, I switched maybe like two resistors and a capacitor in that to just make the power amp sound a bit bigger in a way that I liked. Apart from that stock, because as much as you know, some OCD part of me might want to get in there and change loads of values, I don't want to end up where, again, I just have a whole collection of the same amp or not as good versions of, of a 5150, basically, which was definitely the route that I was on in the beginning. Great answer. Well, Nolly and Ehrman, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It's been awesome talking again. I, I had a great time and let's not wait three years before doing part three. Sure. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, bearing with us as we chatted with all sorts of, went through all sorts of weird topics. Oh, and before I go, I want to make a really quick shout out to George Lever, who you had on the podcast recently. Oh, Because yeah. he did some really nice shouting out to me. And for those that don't know, George and I met up through the Sneep Forum <laughs> many years ago. <laughs> Surprise. He was the only other producer that lived in the area and he and I spent a lot of time together in the early days. Um, and we worked together on a few projects and uh, we don't see as much of each other as we should these days. But, um, you know, the two of us have spent a lot of time kind of developing our sounds together and it's been really cool to see him getting some amazing gigs that he's been working on for some time and for them to come out as good as they have done. So just shout out to George there. He's a brilliant guy. Yeah, he's really, really good. I had a great time having him on the podcast. I didn't know him before that. That was our first time ever talking, but uh, got along immediately, hit it off and... I really, really appreciate his brain. Yeah, yeah, and I think we're going to see a lot more of him moving forwards. I echo that. I do believe that as long as uh, he stays in the game, he's got a really bright future ahead of him. For sure. Cool. All right, well, thanks, guys. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. 
please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.